G'day, and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark, and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start, but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away, or even plan to hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire, where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos, along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and good hunting. Well, good evening, sports fans, and welcome to another campfire conversation. Uh, Jono, how are you? Yeah, doing well, mate. Thank you. I uh, was very unwell last week with my second bout of COVID. And uh, then on Friday, my daughter came down with it. And then on Sunday, my wife came down with it. So it's doing the rounds in the family. um, But everyone's now on the mend and um, now catching up on work and everything else. Yeah, We may may have um, paid out on you a little bit. Uh, after hearing you had your ninth time. round of COVID. I thought it was like no, your fourth yeah. time. It was only my second. Only my second. There was some comment about Jono licking bus handles and public places, <laughs> things like that. But I do, yeah. uh, uh, maybe I should, shouldn't should be frequenting those places. Mm. And uh, Ian, you're good self. How are you? Yeah, good. Yeah, it's been a mad day, but um, we're in the comfy chair now and, and looking forward to the conversation. So, you know, yeah. all happy. And with us tonight is uh, Alexander Proft, or Profty as many people know him. How are you, buddy? Very well. Very glad to finally be uh, talking to all three of you virtually. Maybe one day yes. we'll shake hands. That'd be good. I, Ooh, yes. That'd be good. That, there, there, is a, there is a a goal for the evening. There it is. I think we, we hit it first. We can end now. <laughs> Okay, so for those who are new to us, what we usually do uh, is do a quick round the traps um, and then we'll jump into the podcast. So, uh, Ian, you want to kick off? You've had a pretty busy week in terms of interesting hunting stuff, so you want to lead off? Yeah, so um, I was lucky enough to be invited to public land hunt down Nunderway. A couple of guys that joined us uh, for our hunters camp. Uh, Hunters camp, we had 25 odd people come through, but uh, a couple of them wanted to go back and chase some bucks that they had uh, seen through that period but not managed to cap- catch up with. So they went back down, second cycle of the deer, so it was a good time for them to be going back. And, um, yeah, I, was, I managed to join them in camp. We had to follow the newly found rules of uh, state forest land, and that is that you have to camp in the park that you've booked. And whilst that might seem obvious, um, Nundal and Hanging Rock and... Tugalo all sort of border each other and everyone's always converged mm-hmm. on Ponderosa Park. And unfortunately, during our camp, we had a visit from the rangers who explained to us um, very nicely that uh, officially, if you don't have Hanging Rock, you can't be staying there. And most of our camp had Nundal. Even though it touches the borders of Nundal mm-hmm. at that park, we weren't allowed to stay there. Uh, they didn't kick us out, but you know, sadly, that's now the rule. So our big mm-hmm. camps that we run there, we're going to have to rejig um, but that aside, um, we all managed to find a new camp in Nundal, and uh, we had a great couple of days. It was, you know, it's a six-hour, seven-hour drive down from where I am. Um, was there for dinner on Thursday night. Uh, we were on to deer on Friday morning, um, brought a few back into camp, knocked up a couple of pigs. Not knocked up. That's a really bad way to put it. Knocked over a couple of pigs. <laughs> we, don't want to, we don't want to judge, but you know. yeah. 
Yes, anyway, um, but uh, it was a really good opportunity to, um, A, uh, do some really fun uh, work with the Eliminator 5 that I've been um, that I've been playing with and, you know, get some good cross-gully shots and not, not spot and stalk stuff. Um, so that's good. You'll see that come out on video shortly. But um, also spend a good day what with a couple of... Sorry? What, what was that? What, what, did, what, what were you shooting? Oh, I had a... The I had a, a the, the Eliminator 5. The Burris Eliminator 5. Eliminator 5, sorry. Right. Mm. I look yeah. forward to hearing about that. That's going to be interesting. Yeah, it's a good mm. it's a good bit of gear and, and um, you know, probably not the the best choice of scope for public land because a lot of what we do is really close and it's a 5 to 20, mm. you know, so it's a big scope used for long-range stuff, you know, and, and auto-ranging. Um, so I was lucky enough to put myself in a situation where I could find an animal on a opposite gully opposite ridge on the other side of the gully where I could set up for a nice shot on that. Um, and that all worked out beautifully. Uh, but the next day uh, we had a couple of new hunters in there and we were able to go down and show them some habitat and how I pick apart the ground, what I'm looking for and what I think is good habitat to find bucks and does in um, just to help them be a little bit more successful. And the beautiful part of that was I left a trail cam uh, down there. I'd only scouted this little spot out uh, during the rut this year so i left the trail cam there to come back and have a look six weeks later i come back and there's there's young bucks and older bucks and does and all sorts of things on it so a little bit of education for these guys was proven with the the camera in the long run uh so um yeah it was a good session yes. and something they really enjoyed that's good mm. Mm. awesome mm. do you well, want to talk more about the eliminator right now yeah look the 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 scope itself the the burris eliminator has been it. around for a while um, but this is the the version five that they've brought out. Uh, the main difference between version four and version five is they've done a lot of work with the glass, so it is super clear. Um, typically, these auto ranging scopes have got another piece of glass in them um, to put on all of the red dot, um, you know, um, holdover points. So it can cause issues with clarity and, and light collection. Uh, but this one, they've obviously solved that problem. It's gone away. And it's just a, a really nice piece of gear to use. So it's um, it's I've used a Sig Sawyer scope for a long time, which does the ranging via a handheld um, rangefinder, links via uh, Bluetooth via your phone. Well, it goes directly from the rangefinder to the scope and gives you the holdover points based on the distance. So that's been a really nice piece of gear, and the the technology is separated into two pieces of kit: scope and rangefinder. Right, so it keeps the weight off the rifle if you don't need that piece of technology at the time. And a lot of the time we're in, in the forest, we, we don't need to use a rangefinder because everything's under you know a couple of hundred meters, so we're usually fine. Um, the Eliminator has all of that packed into the scope, the whole lot. So you load your bullet profiles in. I've got three different bullet profiles loaded in. You can choose your round as you're going out, um, and basically you get to your spot. You hit the button on the side, which is at the front of the scope perfectly because that's how your grip is. And it gives you the holdover point. It gives you the elevation drops. It gives you everything that you need to know to be able to take a three, four, five, six hundred meter shot off a one hundred meter zero. So it takes away the need to do all of that ballistics calculation if you're, should I say it, if you're lazy. Um, you know, it, doing a lot of uh, mentoring work. I've always found that being able to get um, having just having that backstop, I guess, of being able to auto range an animal that may have been wounded by a young new hunter and being able to quickly dispatch it, which is why I started to use some of this kit 
um, and it's been really useful. So um, good application. It's it's a good product. It's about all. So of you're it. setting that at 100, and it's auto ranging out to what is it auto? Ranging Eight or nine hundred meters. Yeah, yeah. Now you okay. want to check that because then, I mean then, I know. Cool. Yeah, you, you need you need to check that. But I was going to say, you put in all of the ballistic coefficients, you put in the the muzzle velocity of of the round, uh, and that's you know basic information that's on the packet these days. You put that information into the the bullet profile, and most of the time you can look that up on the Burris site, and you can say I'm using this mm-hmm. Sarko round. Um, it's a 180 grain this type, and it knows it, and it throws all of the data in straight away. So. The only problem there is that factory rounds have been known to be a little bit, um, I don't know, not consistent. A bit of variance in them. Yeah, yeah. a little bit of variance. variance. Yeah. So what you need to do is is you go to the range, you cite it at, at, at 100, you then stretch it to 200, it gives you the holdover point for 200. You hit it. If it's right, you move on. Go to 300, you put that right on the bull. If it's a, an inch below, you just go into the into the scope and you adjust it to say... I'm shooting an inch low, and it will then remember that that round at 300, it recalculates it. And you do it for four and five and six, as far as you want to do it. Um, so it's 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 good tech. It's really good tech. Yeah. I was just thinking that, you know, for a lot of people, they don't get a range with, I mean, for instance, at Belmont, you can't go past 200 now. No. Uh, 300 and that is a special, you know, that's not the mm. normal session. So if you go... Yeah, even at, a, even at Ripley's the same. It's yeah. So, 200 most know, days, but 300 on a yeah, special Yeah, so day. it's actually quite interesting. You know, you're saying it's lazy, but for a lot of people, they don't have the opportunity to to do that. So something that would help them with that is actually not yeah, a bad I, idea. I still, think, I still think ethically, even if you have the technology that can give you that holdover point, if you've not tested that, you mm. probably shouldn't do it because there is variance, as we spoke mm. about. Um, people hand load, mm. you know, there's lots of different combinations. You should test it. Absolutely, you should test it first. And I think mm. that's one of the benefits of belonging well, to, mean, a, to a club, because clubs often have access to a piece of private property where you can stretch out your rounds mm. um, and just mm. see what they're doing. You probably could do it at Belmont if on the right kind of day, if they let you shoot the gongs or something like that. Yeah. Mm. Prof, have you played with any of this mm. gadgetry? No, I've just been thinking about it a lot lately, though, because um, one thing when it comes to hunting more remotely is like, I really want to narrow down the points of failure. Yeah, There's no mm-hmm. doubt about, I mean, like electronics and hunting are now like they've found their way in. And I guess if I've been using a trail camera for years, that mm. is an electronic aid. So I'm going to get, um, there's no sense of smugness about it or anything like that. Um, but I've had it where... I was right in the middle of a, a good opportunity and a red dot site failed. And yeah, it, was, okay. it was a big deal, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, oh, I don't ever want to be in this situation again. This sucks. Yeah. This is and um, I've just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, but, you know, you're a prepared hunter, you know, you, you've got to remember to bring your bolt, your ammunition, your knife, your food, water, whatever, bring spare batteries or power aids for these kind of things. Um, but I've kind of, yeah, it's the moment I've been in any way interested, I've shied away. Mm. And I mean, it was it was a bit of a bigger decision recently because um, I hadn't done any upgrades to my rifle in almost ten years, and I mean, it was great. You know, very standard yeah. Remington seven hundred setup was just doing what it needed to do. Did a bit of range time. Those groups were getting larger. I'm like, oh no, that's um, you know, when you know it's not you, and you're like, well, that's yeah. 
pretty average. You'd like to, mm. if, if you can say it's your fault, well, then that's great. Because at least you know what to fix. Um, and so I was just thinking, well, how far do I want to branch out from all of this? Um, but I've settled for, yeah, standard optics of, of good quality instead and done a few other upgrades to the rifle recently. Um, but chosen not to go down any of those paths. Because mm. the other thing is as well, they're in the, it's not grey zone. It is grey zone. I mean, if you go down to Victoria, there's no form of thermal devices allowed. And mm. I've got to say, just from a free range sportsman point of view, yeah, I'm not going to be bringing, I'm not going to ever own one. I'm not going to do that. Um, it's it kind of steals what I love from hunting for me, not others, for me. But, you know, I'm not far from public land here and I know that there's guys doing same public land hunting as me and, and they will have a, a thermal. They're not shooting at night. They're not doing anything illegal, but they're using it as an aid for those you know, first hour of light or just before in the morning kind of thing. And it is a game changer. Mm, it is. It's interesting. It's and interesting. I'd, I'd, uh, we had this conversation with another guest uh, and um, we sort of left it alone a little bit, but uh, but I'm going to th- I'm going to throw a couple of these questions at you, and I, I don't disagree with you at all. We've been lucky enough to um, to be able to use some thermals recently, just to test them out, and mainly because you know what we're doing with the podcast is we're trying to help educate people that are interested, and in, so that there's some content for them to listen to and understand. Now, when when thermals became available in our license hunting, even though I was in a similar position to you, I still wanted to understand how. How, how they were positioned and what place they had in in public land hunting so mm-hmm. i tried them out now i went i went uh for 10 days down at nundal yes. i carried a thermal with me and over that 10 days the thermal really didn't you know what it did it didn't help me find animals but it okay. helped show me where they weren't right and only on two occasions did i see deer in the 10 days that i was there in the thermal and the depth perception that you get through a thermal is is non-existent so what i could see in the thermal i couldn't see with the naked eye i couldn't see with my binos and i couldn't Mm. see in the scope so it didn't actually help me shoot a deer at all but what i was able to do is i was able to cross into a gully and i was able to spend five or ten minutes scanning and seeing a wallaby and seeing birds and seeing different things but not seeing deer and making the choice then to move on faster. So that's what it did for me. I, I, I'd be interested in what you thought about it going for a walk with one and seeing whether it tipped your advantage or not. Because I, I think until you, until you have a look through them doing you know what you're doing, mm-hmm. I was really surprised. Well, I, I, I played with one once, and it was a, skirm, a, a thermal scope on a twenty two yeah. rifle. Yeah. And um, it was... I've got relatives down in Victoria and they need to do some serious fox control because they raise sure. goats. And, um, and so like, oh, I'll go for a walk, look for the foxes. And you're like, yeah, no, you're really starting to see stuff. They actually, there was, there was using monocular and the scope on top yeah, of yeah. the I can't quote you a brand because I just don't remember. Um, but they're cruising through the vineyards and chasing after foxy. And it's like, oh, there's a Samba deer. Like, yeah, well yeah. away from its average habitat. But like, and then mm. I just spent ages just, cruising you know all the fringe country all around the neighbors and then the neighbor's dogs every night in a row at about 11 o'clock getting across and just doing some little soiree through the property looking mm. for whatever they were looking for um stuff stuff that you wouldn't know otherwise don't get me wrong i found that absolutely fascinating yeah, yeah. um yeah take that into the dense bush 
where you're you know you're hiking in, you're backpacking in. Um, I think it's quite a different story. Now that's not to say that that's going to change your mind, but I'd be interested in your opinion if you packed one with you, not to shoot anything that you saw and changing your mind and your your approach to things, but just to get your opinion after you've tried it in the dense bush because it's it's quite different to what I thought it would be. Well, mm. working through fog and mist, that would be really interesting. Yeah, don't work um, in fog or mist. No, bounces it off. No. Yeah, bounces it off. So look, I use them. So, and I think this is a really interesting conversation. And um, the way I use a thermal is I hunt a, a small block in Brisbane Valley and I get up there before dawn. And the trouble with the block I hunt is one, it's small. So, you know, a mistake means you've, you denude the property of game. And two is the first part of the block is the hardest part because it's the open part. So you've got to cross open country to get into the tree line. And I use the thermal to just kind of go, what's in front of me? Because there's mm. been a number of times I've gone through there, you know, pre-dawn and just gone, oh, there you go, I bumped something. So I actually use it to actually tell me if there's anything in front of me, mostly ruse or cattle, but sometimes deer and actually once pigs, I, I, but I, I heard the, in fact, I heard the pigs before I saw them. I heard them and I use the thermal to, and oh, there's pigs over there. But yeah, I use it kind of as an intelligence gathering device. I kind of go, okay, what's out there that I'm going to invariably bump if I, as I'm moving through in the dark. Mm. Um, because once I get in that tree line, I get into really heavy cover and thermal then really doesn't work. But, well, it works, but the trouble is it sees heat on everything. And so, you know, it becomes, a, you know, a, a heat screen rather than this kind of fantastic deer body sticking out. I remember when I first started using one down, um, I think it's about three years ago, the first generation of the Burris. We were on a private block and it was, you know, and it was in winter and we went out to where the first creek crossing when you moved into the hunting area I remember just picking up and just going and just seeing all the game that was on the paddock. I went, okay, this is why they use them. Because in that paddock situation, it was like, oh, there's a deer, there's a deer, there's there, there's pigs over there, and there's roos over there, and there's cattle over there, and well, that's a bird over there, and you could just see everything. And you could see why people who are using them at night to shoot game use them, because in that mm. kind of situation where you've got an open paddock, it, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. Like, it's not ridiculous. Yeah. It's that you're seeing in a different spectrum. You're seeing heat now not opt you know not not through light light transmission and so everything that was hidden to you now becomes completely clear to you mm. it's an interesting one because i mean again i really want to qualify this and say just because i'm doing things differently i won't won't embrace that for what i'm doing yeah not mm-hmm. in any way a condemnation of it no, no, no for sure no. And and so it, i think i think we've all passed that silly stage it's it's about yeah no, for sure. The one, now, yeah. one thing I do want to kind of draw a line at, it's like, well, where do we all draw our lines at? It's like, mm. we cannot have firearms discharged on public land at nighttime. And I'm always going to stay to that. There are mm. some rare instances where land managers themselves do their own thing and they shut off areas when they do that, sure. But um, yeah, no, I, that, that, that's a safety concern. That's mm. no way saying what someone's, you know, way of enjoying the bush should be. It's not like that. Um, mm. If I was a in, more active in feral pest management with a land manager or something like that, you would, I'd be insane not to own one. Mm-hmm. I would be insane not to own one. Um, and I do, 
now that that advantage is in the hands of land managers, what that ends up going without getting political about it, heading towards the deer question and stuff like that. It's like, oh, well, this could, um, it could have a pretty strong effect. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely. in some ways, like, I don't know, there's many perspectives to look at. I was about to tangent into the deer stuff big time, but I realized we haven't asked Jono how his week's been. <laughs> instant rant. We're rolling. We've hey, moved on from John. Right, we're week. just rolling into it. That's it. This is John. John had COVID. Mine, mine. Yeah, I had COVID. Didn't do much. Although I did get my new Benelli Lupo ready with my with yeah. the scope on for the. Um, we've got an upcoming hunt in to Ben Lomond down in New South Wales. A private I'm so lock. looking forward to that snowy um, trip. In, in two weeks' time. So taking the Benelli, the new Lupo and thirty oh six. Which yeah, got the scope mounted, got a, a baroscope on there, and hoping to get to the range to zero it, and we'll see what we can do with it. That yeah, was pretty much my week. So fantastic looking rifle that thing. Oh, it's beautiful, absolutely it beautiful. It is. So yeah, so I'm going to take somehow... I'm going to take Profty back to his technologies. Um, <laughs> well, I got one before you go. Oh, oh but 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 okay, fine. But no, but the oh, finish off. Go. So I got the opposite. I got this. Oh, oh it. move it into the center. There we go. It's a pocket knife. Congratulations. Yeah, well, it's actually. Um, so recently, a, a very close family friend passed away, and his son was over at the house cleaning up, and he found. He said, "Oh, this, this is this. He'd want you to have this." So it's actually a. Um, the actual. They're actually. I don't know if you can see. It's actually engraved on the blade. It says "bunny knife." It actually says "bunny knife." Go to it the centre. No, it might not be able to see yeah, the reflection. I can see words, but yeah, I can't. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, um, F W uh, Jordan Sologen Blade, little stamp, what they call um, uh, Hollander Kinder. It's got two little, basically children on the blade stamp. So uh, I've con. They still exist. The company still exists. I've contacted them, trying to get a date of when it was manufactured, mm. and I cleaned it up this week. So that that's my latest acquisition, uh, probably a fifties, because uh, he came off the land, so it probably got used on a lot of bunnies over over his lifetime. So that's my latest one. So back to technology. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, since it was raised, uh, trail cams. Mm. So uh, obviously something a lot of us are using nowadays. Um, but do you, are you leaning? Are you, are you putting trail cams out there that you're going back to review, or are you receiving those images via three G, four G? Like, what's how are you yeah, using these devices? You know, it's always something I've got to go back and, and receive. Um, no real time stuff at all, um, and because I can't afford it. And but no, but if I could afford it, I, because I'm not sure if I would. To be honest, can you imagine? But mm, I mean, gotta go. Three thousand eight hundred images of grass. Or you just forget about it. Um, but no, I mean, there's there's two um, opportunities that I would have on very high quality animals locally. That if I had that ability to, yep, yeah, wire it up to four G receive it like being able to act on that would probably get me my animal um mm. was it about the animal or was it about my pursuit when it, this is when it comes to high quality stuff you know yeah, to me yeah. it's not just a big set it's mm. there's a there's a journey and all that i know it sounds really um no no absolutely no, but it's, mm. it's 
that's what I live for. So I'm not going to kill my my love that way. Um, mm. But we've got a wild pig problem locally. And that's the kind of thing that if someone doesn't get on top of it recreationally or on the individual private property level, you know, whether it be landowners and that kind of thing, if we don't do it, LLS steps in. And it's a whole different game. And your autonomy is completely lost. And the relevance of recreational shooting as, you know, a land management tool um, is, is, yeah, becomes officially irrelevant. They mm. say that. Um, and so I do think about that kind of thing a lot. And, um, you know, what we're thinking about more locally is trapping than shooting. Well, they, they get shot in the trap, but you know what I mean? It's not just um, yeah. Yeah. Pursuit. <laughs> getting on top of that kind of thing for the preservation of future pursuits. It's like, yeah, I've got to really think about that. And then it's like, well, hang on. All right. Well, how much am I willing to invest to assist that process in order to have future pursuits? So, yeah, I'm um, not going to talk down um, trail cameras that produce real-time data. But for the same price, if I can get five or six and go on a really big walk and use it as a trap line, um, that's been wildly successful for me. Although, you know, the, the really interesting thing is, though, um, like I've, I've caught some monstrous stags on camera that I've never seen again. And there's areas where I had, like, I thought, oh, I've got this now, like, there's four on just on one hillside and they can't escape me. And then ended up shooting an animal, which I'm sure had been living there like long-term. You could just see from the size of the rub trees and all that kind of stuff. And just the, you know, when prints are really that big, like nothing else can make them. And somehow their paths of travel during the day completely avoided the cameras entirely. Mm. So, you know what I mean? Like it's, it doesn't, it doesn't steal all the magic off you. That's for sure. And no. in terms of a broader understanding of how, you know, Areas of bush go through annual cycles and then long-term seasonal uh, changes over decades with um, climate variations and things like that. When you've had trail camera projects lasting now for up to a decade, which I have, the perspective I have would, would not be the same without them. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's fed my love of land more because I understand my bush more. Um, it wasn't all just about that example just to get that set of antlers or something like that. I wanted to, I wanted to know my bush. And um, there's a few areas where I've just made sure year after year the same cameras go into the same areas with variation, with changes. And I always give them at least six to nine months. Um, yeah, I'm I'm pro trail camera. I don't know. I think yeah. they've got remarkable uses in all different kinds. Of facets, yeah, great. Um, yeah. I just I've, the only thing is I've, I keep putting as many out as I possibly can. I really should have one around the place for security. Um, I found pig shit out in the front lawn the other day. <laughs> I don't know who it was about, but it, it is. It's, it's undoubtedly pig shit. And rubs just 100 metres up there um, on a property line. It's like, wow, you know, I want to be on top of that kind of stuff. Anyway, yeah. yeah well, one of, our young, one of our young hunters uh, found deer shit on the bottom of his car the other day, and he was very confused about how that got there as I chuckled and walked away. Um <laughs> No, like I, I like the trial cameras too. I'm, I'm interested in um, in what brand you lean towards. I've been using quite a cheap and cheerful one out of Anaconda, and I recently pulled it out of uh, out of Hanging Rock. It had been sitting there for a year. I was convinced it was going to get stolen, um, and I managed to recover it a year later. Still had full battery, had four thousand mm. six hundred something photos on it, hundreds of animals, hundreds of animals. Mm. On it. Uh, so it was just, I don't know, it was amazing to see. What was, 
I guess, a little bit annoying was the volume of animals that walked in right behind me within hours. Um, you know, <laughs> I didn't see anything while I was there, but within hours. That's part of this. They are smart. They're very smart. They are very smart, yeah. The thing that blew me away, and, and I, um, I, um, I haven't done this myself, but, and one of the reasons I asked about the 3G, 4G thing was we heard some time ago, I can't remember how we were talking about it, but how people were using a 4G camera on a trail and then sitting some 50 metres up that trail, receiving the text message and the photo of the animal that was walking their direction and being ready for it. And it's something I'd never considered was even a thing until it got raised. And I was like, whoa, that's really pushing the technology limits. You know, three or four cameras mm. up there and sitting in your in your weight. But, um, yeah. Well, you know, there's many states in the United States which they, they had this debate. They decided, yeah. well, we're going to call it at a point. So, mm. I'm embarrassed. Uh, fuck. I don't know. I can't quote the exact state, but I know there's some states which have said no trail cameras at all during hunting season itself. Yeah. So it's yeah. just yeah. a 4G cut up, like no, none whatsoever, mm. which is interesting. Mm. Mind you, obviously, they've got their model and, you know. Yeah, I, mm. I saw that. Because, again, because, um, you know, people could literally be somewhere and kind of go, oh, there's the, that deer there now type thing, you know, and they could respond mm. to it in such a short period of time. I mean, I use trail – I've been using trail cams on the block that I've been hunting now the third year. And as you, you're right, it, you actually start to get like a, you know, a – a pictorial diary of the place and you start yeah. to understand it a lot more. Yeah. Um, you know, because there was for about a year, well, the very first time I hunted that block, I shot a, a huge pig, massive thing, biggest pig I've ever shot, shot it there. And then I didn't see another pig, but I always saw pig tracks. And then after that rain, uh, not the February just gone, but the February before when we had the, the significant flooding, the pigs appeared after that, but then they went away again. And um, so, you know, you, I picked them up on the cameras and then they went away again. And so you kind of get that. It's a really quite interesting when you get to see, you know, the movement of animals. And so, for instance, um, I'm picking up now rabbit, rabbits and foxes and, uh, and you know, and wild dogs. They're, they're starting to move into that block. I've never seen, uh, I've seen wild dogs, I've shot wild dogs, but I've never seen foxes. Now I've got picking up foxes on the trail cam and I'm picking up rabbits as well. So seeing that change is quite, mm -hmm. you know, it gives you a, a very different perspective, but these are simple cheap trail cameras. I've got four. I usually leave two in a static position and I move the other two around. Mm. And the two are in static position. I've got them facing each other type thing because I found yeah, it, right. it gave me a, mm. you know, there would be times where, I, you know, I'd see something and kind of go, what was that? Or I'd get a bit and the other, and they say the other camera picks it up when you use them together. And I literally just carry spare memory cards. When I go up there, I just whip out memory cards, check the battery levels, mm. make sure they're okay. And, um, and then come back or, or actually go into town after I've hunted and sit down and bring the laptop out and start looking. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it is, I, I totally agree. You get like a diary of activity and you get a, get a much better understanding of, of game movement around an area with, with the trail cams. Mm. You're not sitting down underneath your trail cam and, and looking at the photos while you're there? 
Mate, you know me. I've got terrible eyesight nowadays. I've got to carry my glasses. <laughs> glasses Trail cam screen's about that big. You know? Oh no! You can stick it in your stick the card into a uh, a receiver for your iPhone or, or whatever. Yeah, but I don't want to about. carry that with me. I was just waiting to right. go back to town. The That's all right. I was curious. I, I love it. I'll sit down under the trail cam, peel an orange, and then and review the photos. Oh, and yeah. um, you know, I, I like to do that in the bush, but. Um, no, I just usually open her up, make sure it's working, have a look. And yeah, it's got, you know, like 675 photos. I go, okay, well, you know, 600 of those going to be cows and there's going to be 35 <laughs> grass moving. So I might get something out of this one, swap it over and and, uh, and book it later. Yeah. The one thing that I did find that was of most interest to the landowners, I found people who were coming onto the property. Mm. Yep. And he was yep. very happy for me to go, well, do you know this guy? No, I don't know that guy. Okay, well, he's entering from down there. So, mm. what about you, Crofty? What what type of camera are you picking up? Are you, is it if you've got oh, a favorite just, brand or just whatever you can get? Bunnings, they sell this one brand and it was cheap. But yeah. um, although they brought out another one which was even cheaper, and there was finally a, a, a marked difference in in picture quality. Um, I, I don't have any hanging around here. Normally, there's one sitting on the couch. But um, yeah, I, look, it was just that that balance between reasonable enough resolution, but at the end of the day, I do expect them to either get knocked off or smashed. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've only had two knocked off. I've had plenty burnt down in bushfires in Victoria. Well, um, sure. What are you going to do about that? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just not going to overinvest. I, I, there was a funny one. There's a pretty popular patch of public land, which a lot of Sydney siders come out west to. And I thought, oh, I'll just go for a walk through it and um, think about putting out my own cameras and all that. It's a bit of a summertime walk, so you, you know you don't always think about shooting stuff in the middle of summer. Just want to get out before it's, you know, the flies get to you and all that kind of thing. It's um it's a bit of a different situation, but a lot of prep work being done. Anyway, I come around and this tree I'd never seen one of them before, but it was a two hundred and seventy degree camera wrap around this massive dead box tree, and it had a camera that moved along. Oh, AR. oh wow, was, okay. Seen these things before? No, no, no. Available a bit. This... No, I've never seen one of those. Anyway, it was amazing. And so I walk up, and then the camera goes, Ying! follows you. Oh, wow. Looked around. I dropped my Dax at it just to be a dickhead. And then <laughs> back, and then it would just kind of chill for a bit. And then anything came in the periphery, follow it all up. I thought, wow, that's amazing. Someone's, you know, obviously thought this is the spot to be. And it was a pretty damn good spot. Mm. We'll invest. I came back there a month later, and this. <laughs> Tree was down. Oh. <laughs> Love of it. But you know what the funny thing was? When I got close, just a little bit of the the, the side rail was looking up and it was like, whoop, whoop, was just trying to find it. <laughs> it was hilarious. It wasn't hilarious for the poor bastard. Must have no. Yeah, exactly. Imagine what that'd be worth to put it on yeah. public land in a, in a spot that you're, you're already calling out as uh, quite uh, popular. And, well, it. one it's... of my... Mine and my anaconda ones got washed away in February and I found it and it still worked. Hmm. Yeah, right. It's yeah, it got washed away. And I, and even, I even had like kind of, it even took images as it was getting washed away. So it's like, you know, like three-quarter blur water, water, water and stuff like that. Fully, fully I, I, was, I thought that's actually, I was like, imagine if you saw a fish or something. Yeah, three <laughs> trout and two eels. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. But it didn't, it got washed away. Because so I went there and went, it was on that tree that's not there anymore, but it was there. So I just went walking. No, the tree didn't move too far. About a hundred meters, it did. You know, slow down and lost enough energy for the tree to. And there it is, still wrapped around the tree. Yeah. Well, I think it's um, 
yeah, it's, it's, it's good to hear that you're using some of the, the, the cheaper stuff that's out there, wildly successful in your pursuits on public mm. land. You know, it's well documented with your videos and bits and pieces. So people mm. will um, will take a lot from the fact that they can just go and get that cheap one from Bunnings or Anaconda or whatever and, and make the most of it because you can oh, invest a lot of money in trial camps. 100%. And let's preach that because it's not just – it's not just about trying to say, oh, you don't have to have much coin. It's not about that. I, I'll never forget, this was years ago, watching a guy, it, it's not often you bump into a hunter, but I was going down a fire trail. There's the orange hat coming towards him. I'm like, how are you going, mate? How's your day been? And this guy was just panting. And he was like, oh, my God, he's, he's in a bit of physical distress. He's, he's pretty exhausted. Watching head to toe in, in, in pretty high-quality American hunting gear, fancy Gore-Tex and stuff like that, would have been expensive. Um, <laughs> hadn't brought water and hadn't brought other basic kit right so i just but i do notice that there's, but there's so many fresh hunters who are very keen to go straight to buying things and, and a lot of it's because just so you can't get out hunting all the time like you want to do something to nurture your passion or just it's retail therapy that's what it is yeah, yeah. um and, and again i'm not condemning it but that if you're not asking yourself what is each piece of garment for what piece of kit is for um, in any way, semi-practice with it. it. There's a bit of a tester because I don't like hunting with other people that much um, unless they're really on the same page as me with like, we've got the same goals, really get along, all that kind of stuff. It's like, I'll share a camp with you, but we won't hunt together kind of thing. Um, a little bit of a tester is I start to ask those kind of questions first. It's like, well, if someone's new and they'd like to, please, can I can I get some kind of assistance or, you know, and you take me by the hand. It's like, oh, what have you done already? And the answer from most of them is like, well, I've gone and bought a whole bunch of stuff, which is technically uh -huh. putting your money where your mouth is. But um, all they had to do was just start bushwalking. Yeah, I mean it. Like, yeah. do you own yeah. rain jack? Why not? You know, your shirt and pants don't need to match. It's not necessary. That's the deer don't thing. care. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, the yeah. thing is, like, to say it doesn't all look camouflagey or huntery and whatever. Um, Maybe it's quite visible and probably we wear orange. I know orange is different to blue. I know it's for the same reasons and all that. But for me, I, I, I'm not against camouflage at all, particularly now that I'm interested in duck hunting. I'm, I'm trying to find hunting. ways to about mm -hmm. camouflage, right? But by me deciding no, prioritize orange was to say, really start working with the wind, really start listening, and finally start learning to look from a great distance. And you know, it served me pretty well. And if I was putting, you know, that clothing side of things first, um, I wouldn't have been nurturing those other essential skills and nurturing those other essential skills served me really well. And so, like, I'm still wearing the same swan dry that my grandmother bought me 15 years ago. I'm still using the same set of gaiters. It was a set of Morocco 30s. Um, they don't need my endorsement, but I'll say like they've gone through two underwires and they're still great. Um, why did I need to replace them? Or it's, it doesn't mean you can't replace them. But for me, it's like, well, I can spend that money on other things. Mm. Um, mm. For me, the main thing I spend my money on is not going to work. You know, it's so it's like you decide to have a reduced income lifestyle for the sake of time. It's like, cool, we're well, going to act pretty thrifty. Um, the brain reason I want to kind of get it across is because we're not a culture where hunting is this elite thing. It is not just the pastime of the rich or the royalty. 
you know, mm. um, sometimes it can have a dollar figure attached to it because it's something of value. There's nothing wrong with that. The point is, I've always just really wanted to cling to the idea of someone who had lesser means and actually thought that hunting was going to substitute their food bill. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because we're one of the few countries on earth where that subsistence dream is actually real. Mm. It's actually real. I mean, it's actually even realer than it is in Alaska or somewhere like that where they acknowledge the need. They know that people live that way. But even then it's like, cool, all right, there is another tag for another caribou. For us, it's like, Go cool. get some more. Yeah. Mm. That's it. You know, go get some more. Get better at it. Like the, the, you don't have to wait for another five or six months to hopefully have the inkling before autumn. It's like anytime you want. Um, I want as many people utilizing that as possible. I want them using their brains more than they think they can use their wallets. Um, I'm biased towards that. And look, you know, I'm I'm lucky. I just get emails quite often, particularly this time of year, um, from a lot of young people between 18 to 21, both guys and girls as well, which I love. Um, and you can tell they're, they're switching on like that because if you're fresh out of school and you don't have heaps of money, you don't have parents who are supportive of it, willing to you know, say, yeah, sure, here's a coin to go buy a gun or something like that. Um, they're starting to use their heads. They're starting to look at their local area and not having to travel these vast miles. Don't want to rub that into Queensland as I know you don't have public land hunting. Um, but I mean, well, I know that many people who are like, you know, from very reduced circumstances south of Wollongong, um, Yes, there's high deer in those kind of areas and all that. They just started thinking from a young age, like, we're going to knock on doors. We're going to shake hands with farmers. Hey, why don't I even get a farm job? Just thinking about it like that. And then all of a sudden, these are the people who've just used their minds and really like, completely substituted all forms of red meat in their diet um, with extra to share with their friends and family. So you, I'm painting a bit of a mixed picture here. I'm not saying let's all be poor, but let's start like using our heads because that's that's a great equalizer. Um, yeah, and I think yeah. the, the, the message that needs to come from that as well is if you're trying to get a start, if you're trying to get going, don't wait until you've got matching camo and a caliber for each type of game you want to shoot. You can start right now. Mm-hmm. If you get the wind right and you look from distance, you can bump into game even if you're wearing blue. It, it's not going to... It's not going to stop you getting the experience that you need, and I think that's really important. No, and that's and one thing that none of us can escape is that you've you've got to have some level of fitness. Your legs have got to work, and mm. the more they can work, the better. The better you can go in. And mm. I, I know some people who have physical ailments where they can't walk as far. Like it, it is a it is a major issue for them. So the way they substitute that with is is a lot of brain work and really trying to get like well, let's, let's see as close as we can get. And work out little sit and wait positions, work out the time, all that kind of stuff. So it's either going to be fitness, it's going to be mental intelligence or both and enough gear to match up to that. But if you buy extra gear beyond what your fitness allows or your intelligence allows, it's kind of dead money. Mm-hmm. Dead, weight, dead weights as well. Well, that's <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we need to think about too is that for so many people, and this is you know a big part of what we do is um, they don't have a point to lean on in terms of experience. So mm. you know they're, they're they you know they are they are substituting you know um, purchase with experience, which 
um, is, you know, you might argue that's putting the cart before the horse, but to me, if that is the motivator for them to then pursue it, and I mean, because it's, if you think about it from a, a learning point of view, some people do it and then when it doesn't work, look at the instructions. Mm. Some people mm. really want to study the instructions before they take a step forward. Yeah. And, I, and I, you know, and I'm, so what I ultimately want to do is no matter how you approach that particular thing, so if you're a kind of, you know, point me in the right direction and if I get in trouble, I'll call you. Mm. Or you're like, okay, I've got to have everything checked before I go ahead. If the, Whoever you are in that spectrum, what we want to do is, is make sure that no matter where you sit in that spectrum, the end goal is you're actually out there. Mm. You're out there. So yeah. getting people out there to is, is really, um, I think, the primary motivation at this stage. And then, because I, I mean, what you're talking about is, I, I think, a, um, it's like a higher order thought process about what hunting could mean to someone. Mm. You know, you know, you, you're saying, well, if you think about it this way, what we're actually saying is, you may actually be able to change the way you live your life through hunting. Yes. And yeah, I think that's a that's a really high yeah. order of thought. I mean, it, it by no means is that a good or a bad thing. I just think that's a that's a long way up the thought pyramid. Um, but I think what we have to do in this country, as much as we can, is get people on that pyramid. Yes. So uh, if if they get in the base level and they do it by purchasing, or they get out by doing it, and then you know, kind of going, look, uh, you know, I've been to Severn six times and I haven't seen a goat type things. Okay, let's talk to you about how we can do. It. And we've actually had that where we've had someone say, look, I've been to this forest a couple of times. I haven't seen a deer. So literally sitting down with them and going, okay, go here. And what we found is that whilst they've, in that first instance, you know, they've took, they've taken that advice and then that's got them started and, and then away they go and they're now on their journey. So it's about getting everyone on their, that journey, whatever, however they want to start that journey, um, getting them on that journey. And I, you know, and as I said, I think what happens is as you progress on that journey, your thought processes do change. You know, you, mm -hmm. you get to these kind of more higher order thoughts about what hunting actually means to you and, and what, how important your pursuit is. And those questions uh, that you've raised about where, where, where is the borderline of technology? That's really kind of tertiary thinking. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that, that represents, you know, how many years you put into, to hunting to get to that point. And I think that's really commendable. And I want to, I want to try and get everyone on that journey and where they stop or where they go with it, that's up to them. But we want to get as many people thinking about what hunting is, but by doing, by doing, getting thinking by doing, so getting them out there, getting, getting involved, getting them having some success, mm. turning success into, you know, more success. And that not necessarily means better animals, a bigger game, but, you know, feeling confident, being more more willing to explore, whatever it is, getting them started. Yeah, um, it's funny because I was just having this conversation the other day, and the conclusion of the conversation through a lot of back and forth was actually like, we need we need new hunters, we need the numbers to rise, but we need more than that. We need more people just in Middle Australia to be okay with hunting. Mm. And because, and, and one thing I noticed spending a fair bit of time on public land is that there is a lot of newbies turning up mm. and, um, and you think, well, I want them to have a, a good experience. You know, I want them to 
have their expectations very carefully managed and to think that they're on a journey to build a skill rather than just rocking up and, and having what they think they can just take. Um, and then you meet some, you're like, shit, who gave you a gun license? Mm. <laughs> no, but like that's honestly, I'll, I'll, I'll put it straight to you. If there is one single death in New South Wales public land from a firearm, it could even be a suicide. It's gone. It's absolutely gone. We live in like a world that is just so focused towards safety and all of that kind of stuff. And when it comes to, you know, giving a potentially risk in government mindset or an insurance mindset, a risky activity, the go ahead, it's all got to look really good from the outside. I mean, they're not looking from the, for the exception, but the whole thing's got to look pretty damn polished. And um, when you get a lot of new people into the game, it's like, all right. I mean, I don't know. I've never been vetted as a hunter or as a gun owner in Australia. And apparently there's, there's processes to do that. But I joined the SSAA online ages back, what, 2007 or something like that. Um, turn up to the odd meeting and the odd shoot. There's a, it's, it's, it's the fastest growing pursuit in this country right now, recreationally. All I'm trying to just say by this is just a little bit of control. Mentorship's the big thing, but just a little bit of a funneling, like make sure the doors are slightly narrowed to get into this. And it's not an elitist thing. It's just to make sure that people really know the rules. Mm. Some kind of proof about that. Just some kind of, I mean, this is, you know, I'm mentioning just before, like, Oh, I, I don't actually like hunting with other people that much. Well, there's a selfish side. I just enjoy my, my own company, my own time, being able to just do it any way I want out there. But the other thing is, like, I get really worried about gun safety. And you can, it, like, there's just none of us are immune to that thing. Every single one of us is capable of making a mistake. And so we all work very hard on ourselves to make sure that that doesn't happen. That's why there's procedures. That's why there's firearm safety training and all of that kind of stuff. And a lot of that works until that one moment when someone just hasn't really thought about it. And I've, unfortunately, in the last year or so, had a couple of incidences where someone who was just, you know, you'd look at them and think, this person's number one and they're so keen. That's the thing, the keenness, you know, the eagerness to be part of it all. And that's just like, open that bolt now, buddy. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, I don't, it's, it's just a, it's just a millimeter away from like the biggest problem in your world. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you, you talk about that and not knowing, you know, what people are doing. I, I hunted on a property in South Africa and the, the one of the, the, the farmers who owned the property was also a hunting guide mm-hmm. and they brought out some, I think they were American. I'm not going to say that, you know, with confidence, but an international hunter, they climbed on the back of the truck, dropped their rifle. They had a loaded round in the back, back of the, in the rifle, and it shot him in the back of the head with a 270 and blew off half of his skull. He survived it. He wasn't all there afterwards, but that's because someone climbed on the back of a ute with a loaded rifle, dropped the rifle, and bang, it went off. So yeah, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to trust people climbing in the back of your ute or standing next to you with a loaded firearm that they know what they're doing. Yeah. Look, the way I, I look at it, the way I look at this, if I drive the Nundle and I do it a fair bit, I will be. There will be at least one part of that journey where I'll be, I'll, I'll be, I'll be um, adjusting for another driver's uh, lack of confidence. You know, it's it. That's for me. I, I've, I've always said that the most dangerous part about hunting is getting there. 
and you know and and getting home you know the the, yes. the, the you know road users and you know there's yeah you know, there's usually one incident on the trip down the Nundle or trip back where we kind of go okay um yeah we don't want to be involved in this passing maneuver that you're you know this guy in front's about to pull on this truck or something like that so i understand what you're saying about safety and things like that but i, I you know there's again i think you don't get that without participation you can you can do all you can do all the the there's two things that you can't control one is you can't control malicious intent no of course not which is no. so let's kind of throw that yeah, over yeah. there because we can't yeah. do anything about malicious intent mm -hmm. and the other thing you can't do anything about um without without do you know so this, what you can do something about but you have to have to do it is actually practice you can't you can't practice without actually participating. You can't, you can't, you, you just can't do it. You know, you, it, if you do any contact sport or any kind of combat sport, you realize that you've got to, you've got to mix it up to get good at it. You can watch as many videos as you want, things like that. So I'm of the, the opinion when it comes to gun safety, one is it's paramount. Two is we have pretty stringent rules about when we hunt together as a group as we, that is we don't carry loaded firearms. So, I don't care where the bolt is because there's nothing in the chamber and that's we, we, we carry in, we shoot empty cha empty yeah. chamber. You've got a procedure. That's it. And I, so that's what, when people talk to me about gun safety, they say, what do you know? Do you have bolt half opened or you do the safety? And I go, neither. There's nothing in the chamber. Mm. So the first thing we do is, you know, you close a bolt on an empty chamber and that's it. Um, so I think again, you know, being the point of influencing people about that is 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 a really important part of of what bringing people into into hunting is all about bringing them into the seriousness of what you're doing you know it's a serious activity um catch and release that's for fishing rods what we're doing there's no such thing it's serious and it's not only serious in terms of you know gun safety it's also serious in the terms of once once you let that go once you let that arrow fly, that you pull that trigger, you 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 know you you, can't that dog that dog grab, grabs that the dog grabs that peg and you got the knife out. That's it. You you are now completely what next decision you make has has unreversible consequences. Mm -hmm. You know you, you cannot pull it back. So I think in a way that's almost the more important thing when it comes to mm -hmm. gun safety is that this thing here will do exactly as you tell it to do. Mm -hmm. Whatever you tell this firearm to do, it will do it. Mm -hmm. But the I consequences mean, of it are, are, are in totality. There, it's mm -hmm. it's. There's not like, oops, sorry. It's not like not Nerf gun. Yeah. No. I mean, from from my perspective, <laughs> I mean, I I spent twelve years in the UK, and um, obviously they've got deer shooting, they've got duck shooting, bird shooting, etc. But they have a a training program, and I know we've spoken about this before. Which so they call it deer stalking, not deer mm. hunting, um, where you can actually do a qualification. Now it's not compulsory; it is voluntary to do. But a lot of the properties that you hunt on actually stipulate you have to have a minimum qualification of the the, the, the level one certificate. Yeah, now D that level one certificate, DSC one, deer stalking certificate level one, that that certificate includes um, you have to go through a you know a theory component which includes firearm laws, fire, firearm handling species identification, sexing, you know, you know, here's a, a photo of a, a fellow, a fellow, 
whole idea, is it a buck or a doe? You know, you have to look for the pedicles, you have to look, you know, is it a yearling or whatever? Um, but as, then the second component of that is, is actually practic practical. So you have to do um, a shooting test. You have to do a, um, they had a safety test. So they had uh, cutouts of deer in, in certain positions and they would stand you in a position. So is that a safe shot? Is it skyline? Is it not? And then they also had a component about meat handling. So how do you, properly butcher a deer? How do you cut up a deer to make it safe so that you can actually enter that into the, the food chain? So they're actually teaching meat handling skills. So I think it's a very, very, it's a very robust course, um, you know, and they had level two, which actually included mentorship. So you would do, you know, you really got theory, but you would actually have to go and, and, and hunt with a, um, a qualified um, assessor who would actually then monitor you in the field to make sure that you're following proper gun safety skills that you're looking, you're glassing properly. It's an education piece. And I think that's really what's lacking here is that education, that formal education. And mm. I know a lot of people are trying to do that informally through, you know, mentorship, but I do think we're lacking a bit of that formal training. And I think that could go a long way to improve safety. Absolutely. I, the only reason I was bringing it negative to talk about being worried about gun safety and, and then that leading on from the gear stuff was just like exactly what you've just said, Jono. It, it's not a now and everything, but like the sooner we can like make a big expansion of formalized hunter education in this mm. in this country, I know there are opportunities out there. Some of them are a bit expensive and that therefore less accessible. Um, I know the DPI will, might have started with Game Council, not sure, but DPI for a long time has had a leap program where they were giving out um, all the materials you could possibly want to hunting clubs to run their own um, training courses themselves. But I guess if people didn't have to have it, no, you'd get mm. some, some who wouldn't. That's fine. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I err on the freedom of the individual, but yeah, we live in the real world. We live in the modern world. It's safer for everyone, but also you will be a better hunter for it. I mean, because mm. I, didn't have formal training. You know, I started most of my initial hunting with, you know, you would go out and hunt with some other people from time to time. There's some very key points where mentorship came to me later on, but all of the early stuff was working it out, really drawing on a lot of the United States influences, um, which were all basically just regurgitations of their own hunter education programs from each different state, which were very comprehensive. Um, so I was like, well, what can we do to just mimic some of that? Take it here. That's what I'll, I'll practice. That's what I'll do. Um, I've been very lucky that I had mentorship, particularly on red deer um, and samba deer at later times in my hunting. But I'm just shocked by some of the most remedial stuff that I'm only learning these days. And it's like, if you don't know, you don't know. Someone mm -hmm. hasn't brought it up in conversation. Just simple stuff like that. Um, for example, I don't see any reason why if you have a, a good standardized hunter education system, a good open conversation about it, where lots of clubs are doing the same thing simultaneously, that everyone who comes out the other side will be on a certain level. Like, why isn't game meat harvesting, like game meat discussions and hygiene and, and butchery processes discussed mm. a lot more? I mean, it's one thing, like, yeah, a lot of clubs do demos, and that's awesome. Like, do more. Um, I would get emails multiple times a week saying, what's the go with eating wild pigs? And I'm not really qualified to answer that. And I'm worried about, you know, what I say to people sometimes because I can't say, you know what, I reckon you should go for it. 
than someone that's brutal injection or worse. Yeah, like I reckon you shouldn't go for it. That's, that's no, I reckon I shouldn't go for it. But why would we not have just at least standardized information about all the health issues with game animals and how we mm. as hunters can mm. identify them? Um, rather than saying, oh, look, it's a spotty liver or it looks a bit crook like that. That's that's basically all I go off myself. And mm. yeah. Yeah. So that, that course that I did, um, they actually, they actually, they made you look at the different lymph nodes, look at the quality and, and the state of the nodes. So, um, and showed you where they were on the deer. So they brought a deer out, they'd butcher the deer, show you the different nodes, where to look at them, how to look at the liver to identify specific diseases. You know, um, it was really comprehensive because, so I guess the difference in the UK is there is actually a market for game meat. So you can sell your carcasses to a game dealer and it goes into the food chain and it's accepted. You go to a butcher, you buy game meat. It's not a thing here. Um, <clears throat> no, we've got a, a, you know, a room meat market, but that's heavily, you know, that's well, there, there's a course, you have to do the course for that. You have to have accreditation. You have to do, you know, you have to have all the, the right equipment to do that, but we don't have that for game meat. And why is venison any different to a kangaroo in my view? Um, we should have, accreditation and a national accreditation for the handling of game meat and for hunters in my view i find it really strange i mean you know that in another time if someone someone started suggesting our oh, commercial market well it just looks like there's a commercial market versus the recreational crowd um but our context in australia and new zealand are very damn different and mm. i take a carcass being used commercially any day over a helicopter shooting them to waste and also to mm. take that taxpayers money to do that. I mean, that, that's like a really big thing around my area right now. And, you know, they're claiming like, Oh, 600 shot over there, a thousand shot over there. Like that's the numbers that they're quoting. It's like in individual days and you think what a waste. And then mm. the next thing people say, Oh, you should let the old hunter go in and sort it out. It's like, well, we haven't sorted it out. And then they'll mm. say, Oh, national parks. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm really annoyed about that. You know, we should have some access to national parks, but a lot of these areas where they're shooting most is private land and on certain patches of state forest as well. Now, the thing is, why couldn't some of that money then just go straight back into the budgets of, of land managers? You know what I mean? Like why? Yeah, it, it feels like it's a one really simple thing to fix that opens up a lot of possibilities. And mm. it doesn't devalue deer necessarily because people say, oh, well, it's going to be just one big wipeout. It's like, well, New Zealand has plenty of deer in it. I know people would argue that there's some that are more areas that are more precious than others. It's a lot less than they used to be, but that value and how much recreational hunters care about it, but also its financial value, those things are both valued. You know, deer as being a, a special valuable animal isn't diminished by saying, all right, we're going to start putting a lot of them into freezers. Um, and that's always the go with recreational stuff. I mean, a classic thing I heard, um, which is bad, this is bad, but in New Zealand when there was some money for possum skins going around in fluff, so a lot of people would be putting out trap lines, is that certain areas in New Zealand which had been possum-free for a while, you know, possum started turning up and it wasn't naturally because, you know, that value is maintained, there's incentives and all that kind of thing, but... The whole thing's predicated on a lot of animals being knocked down. And when it comes to deer, if they're only dropping a fawn once or maybe twice a year, if it's twins, you know what I mean? It's like, I think it's, it's, we're well overdue for a commercial market that's extensive in this country. I mean, there is, there is commercially shot deer in Australia. That does happen, but not on the proper streamlined scale that it should do, in my humble opinion. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a, there's a commercial um, 
game meat harvester in our area, and he was he had a thriving little business, um, supplied to a lot of the restaurants and things down the Gold Coast. Um, very very good at what he was doing, and his entire well known to the operators, but the area that he maintained, looked after, and culled from for this purpose got a helicopter cull, and it had a management plan on it. So yes. Oh, it was so unfortunate, but yeah, it basically put that business out, mm. right? And it's just, yeah, I don't know. I, I won't go on about it too much, but you know, even in an area that had a commercial operation, it wasn't taken into account when they wanted to smash the numbers down. And on this one, you know, one or two properties in this area, you know, they were they were bowling over five to eight hundred ago, sort of thing. It was a lot of animals left there. But anyway, that'll get. Uh, a few people riled up. We talked too much about the helicopter culling, I think. Well, I think that the challenge with the commercial market idea is that, um, in essence, it makes sense, but it very rarely translates into a functional market. I mean, I don't know how many times they've set up goat abattoirs, but they nearly always fail, and you know, and seeing because ultimately. The commerciality of of game meat is is determined not by the by how it's harvested, but by who buys it. You know, so at the end end user. So if people aren't eating boar, they're not eating goat, they're not a, not or not willing to eat deer, then you know the market falls or tends to fall over. But I think there's another commercial market that's out there, and again, you know, Profty, you were kind of alluding to this is that. The commercial market of consumption by those who pursue it or the one step on. So, wouldn't it be great if I could shoot a deer and take it to a local butcher mm. Mm. and pay that butcher? You know, I pay him, but say, mate, could you process? And I know that in, I think, you, can you do that in Victoria? I think you can. I, 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 I will I stand corrected if I got that wrong, but I think in Victoria, but I know in the States, it is completely commonplace. You can do it in New Zealand. So, so you actually go to the book, you know, the, and again, the butcher has specifications and stipulations. You know, you just can't turn up three days later with, the, with something dead and go, mate, make this, in a, make this into something for me. But if you meet their specif- you know, stipulations about preparation and, and whatever, They'll turn it into. They'll do it for you. So you you give it to them, and you get sixty, eighty, hundred pounds. It's because American, mm. in you know wrapped, tagged, processed, ready to go meat. Mm. That's very common. I, I know so many people. Like there's there's butchers in Bathurst who um, are just pumping out sausages for people to the point where groups will come together and they said like, well, it doesn't matter how many fowl you got this weekend. We'll just lump them all together and we'll agree that we all just get the same. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you were hunting in the state forest, so if you think about that, so if you, I'm going to go hunt the state forest. So I, I travel the state forest, I shoot a deer. If there's a local town where a butcher would, is illegal, is legally allowed for me to take that in, all of a sudden, you know, I'm bringing a commerciality to, to recreational hunting because the cost of me traveling down there and all the stuff that I'm, I'm willing to pay that is saving government in terms of you know i'm willing to pay for a license i'm willing to drive there i'm willing to use my ammo i'm use it all that stuff then i can actually engage with local businesses in that area and actually get that meat processed and maybe cryo back so when i'm leaving i can pick it up and drive home and so again i think where the commerciality sits is 
all those little businesses that can drop be driven off hunting and and hunting related things so you know so that's it so you don't have to worry about and if it was processed by the butcher then you know i could share it with people because you know i could say okay here's processed meat i mean i know i notice there's a fantastic thing i see in the states you know where there is food banks that people donate carcasses to Mm. yes so it's it's not even like i don't i've shot this deer you have it you process this properly and efficiently and effectively and hygienically and generate food for other people and you kind of think why aren't we doing that yeah you may not be you may not be aware in queensland if if i if i shoot a deer it doesn't matter where i shoot it but if i shoot a deer and bring it home i am not allowed to give it to a friend a neighbor or a family member i'm not allowed to give any of it to anybody unless Mm. they come and eat it at my home Mm. i did not know that that is the law here in Mm. queensland because it's interesting because there was a fallacy being spread that that was also the law in Victoria, Victoria. and it's not true. Yeah. We're throwing that out there a lot. Because it was just, you know, social media thing. It just ripples. And yeah. it wasn't but interesting to hear that. So it's the same, the same on my property. You know, we run a few sheep. I can't, I can't raise and butcher a sheep here and give it to anybody. The only people that can come and eat it, the only people that are allowed any of it are those that come and eat it here. Yeah at my home mm. yeah now i can go and get food safe licenses and change that um mm. for what i raise here but i can't get a food safe license mm. to do that with wild game i'd have to mm. become a game a game butcher yeah so it's yeah. it's just bizarre like i love the whole idea of you know the story behind the hunt you know you know pulling a piece of meat out of the freezer and you know you've written on it you know where it came from you recount the story you can talk about it with your friends you know it's just such a fabulous part of what we do. Um, not being able to share it just seems madness, but that's the state of the world we're in. You're talking about being safe. It's all about safety. Um, and back on that subject, Crofty, I, I wondered, um, you know, so, um, you were talking about, um, John, you were saying uh, maybe, maybe some of these pre-courses that could be done to make it safer. It's really hard to bring that conversation in when there's never been an incident, right? How do you make it safer than what it currently is statistically? Um, but I wonder whether the whole um, breakup of a park, like when we use Nundle, we use Nundle all the time because we go there a lot, but, you know, Nundle can take 25-odd hunters. You know, should there be consideration to the units inside that like they do in the US to stop multiple people being in exactly the same spot at the same time? I was well, down that would there. Be, I guess that... Um you know, watching your backstop, wearing orange, only shooting what you've completely identified, that would be to suggest that the basic hunting protocols like that are not sufficient Mm. um, or that we can't be trusted to do them. Um, Which is, yeah, I don't know. It's it's, it's slippery slope, isn't it? It is a slippery slope. And the precedent, though, is already set. In New South Wales, I I really do cling to New South Wales as a great model because the first public land hunting program that propped up in the 21st century you think mm. how was that going to happen and they did that and it's this enormous expansion there have been more public hand, land programs that have popped up since then like in tasmania expansion of existing programs all that kind of stuff but to think that a completely scraps to nothing thing could happen 
in the 21st century like that and then stand the test of time. That is a beautiful thing. That is it the is. best thing. And if you, I don't want to, because I understand what you're just saying there. I don't want to tangent too much, but can I just say, I'm going to put my hands up. I, I, I drew this conversation towards the political and the <laughs> me. not your fault. You guys are really positive dudes. But to, to switch this, every single thing that we've brought up here is an amazing opportunity for like really mindful, moderated growth, industry growth, like bringing people in. There's so much opportunity around all of this kind of stuff. And we say like something like, oh, well, I can't process game and can't do this. It's like when it only looks like there's one or two steps to make that possible and there's dollar figures attached to it. It's like, it's just, I find it amazing what governments are willing to do when people actually just give them mindful proposals. And I just don't think like, I keep hearing about proposals that come up in front of government, but they're either just really, they're not backed, they're not done in a professional, mindful way, um, but we know they can be because the Shooters Party in New South Wales pushed for a program, did a really mindful, incremental step expansion of it all. And in New South Wales, we have one of the best hunting opportunities in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm, I'm, that's not, that's not just bias. That's not exaggeration. It is one of the best in the world. Oh, there's um, no doubt about it. I mean, mm. it, it, it is possible in Queensland. It's really oh, possible. It's, oh, absolutely. Like, it's possible anywhere, but what we're, what we're talking about is political will. I mean, mm. you know, it, it's, it's all I'm saying is that there's all possible. Like, it's not just like, oh, uh, possibility. It's like, no, no, no. There are incremental steps that we can all be taking. I remember I, I spoke to a couple of people about the Queensland situation once, and they really they were impatient about it. They just wanted like to, to jump into like, well, why can't we talk to forestry? We can't talk to the companies here and make it all happen and let us in. And I said, well, what you could be doing in the meantime is just set up an accreditation program and then just trial that on private property areas, like certain farmers that, you know, in Brisbane Valley or something, I'm not going to pretend I know the Queensland stuff that much, but in these key areas, I say, oh, they will value the accreditation or give better preference to people with the accreditation. I'm sure the ADA gets preference preferential treatment for a lot of this kind of stuff up there anyway for all those kind of reasons just these stepping stones forward and what happens with that gradually gradual expansion but that strong like footshore expansion is that trust just keeps building and building and that's not trust just with the hunting community we're talking about the trust of farmers and landowners and the trust of middle australia mm-hmm. uh, i just see possibilities everywhere um talk about political will yeah not it's our will well and i, 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 I the way i see it is that will i'm sorry like i just hear so many people who are bitching within our hunting community oh, who yeah. spend vast amounts of emotional energy just on, on on airing grievances to the choir it's like there's some people with great out uh, ideas out there and and when people come up with a good idea it's like let's get behind them let's get behind them and, and offer them a bit of that will um because I, honestly, I just don't see it. I don't well, see it. Just, to me, yeah. it's a question of numbers. I mean, government listen to numbers. Mm. And that's why, you know, again, another big part of what we're doing is the more people that we get around this conversation, the more it becomes a conversation. And when things are conversations, then they become influential. So, and yeah, you know, that point you spoke about, you know, the, the non-hunting public, that's something that Ned Makins talks about um, what he calls social license. Mm. So it it doesn't, it's never going to be, there's, there's never going to be like this 
block of hunters that are so influential that they will turn elections, you know. No. But what they might, but if if you get to a point where people kind of go, I don't hunt, but what I see is of value of what they're doing, or I, I benefit, or I know people, things like that. Then you actually get you get gravity, you know, you you get you get an ability to um, influence because I, I think there's having had some experience about putting these things up to government. It's never I've never seen a bad plan go to government. I've never seen an outrageously silly plan go to, to, to get to that because most of the outrageous silly stuff never gets past social media. The, you know, the people who actually put in the effort to actually put something up to government have, have given it some consideration. Um, the trouble is, it, from my experience, is they look at it and kind of go, okay, let's put this on the scales. And it's just so far down the scales of what's seen as a politically, um, you know, have political benefit of them that it just doesn't rate. Mm. Um, so we have to actually get numbers up where they kind of say, well, actually, you know, there's a lot of people invest, interested in this and there's a lot of people invested in this. And um, so, we, we, you know, it's it's worth our while to listen to that. The other mm. thing is, um, you know, the, the fact that I think as a, I don't know, a community, as it were, for want of a better word, we have to better interact with our industry because our industry pays taxes. Our industry employs people. Our industry, you know, buys property. Our industry, our industry, you know, contributes to the Australian economy. And so we've actually got to get more connected to our industry. And I mean, so we've got to know more about our industry. We've got to know about the people in our industry. We've got to know what they're trying to do and and and, and communicate with them. Um, because, I mean, the, the weirdest thing is some of the biggest gun shops in Australia are in Queensland. Yeah. It used yeah. to be the, the two biggest, but, you know, um, gun exchange closed up. But, I mean, Cleavers is huge. And, I mean, yeah. and, and, and more importantly, the online market of Cleavers is massive. You know, they're, they're huge gun stores and they're based in Queensland. Well, they're based in the southeast Queensland too mm. because the markets there are people who are buying stuff from them. So, you know, it's about how do we how do we get industry and, and, and the you know, the, the community of hunting and shooting together to actually say, well, you know what, we do have some, we both have will, but we have political will. We, we, we're actually can we can actually have some influence here. I think that's the big challenge. I mean, we spoke to, um, uh, you know, various political parties on, on, on the, on the podcast and, you know, they'll tell you they're fighting a good fight, but they're, they are very small players in a, in a very big machine. So we need to back them just as much as we want them to, to advocate for us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the meantime, I mean, we, all of us here, we, we, we're in a, we can only do what we can really do, right? Yep. Um, mm -hmm. There was a small avenue for me to kind of get into the political sphere at one stage. And I was like, no, no, I'm not going to ruin my life. Yeah, um, I'm, but I'm also, sure. I'm going to stick to my strengths. And the cultural side of things is a huge one. That's that's a huge part of social licensing. Um, you know, I, we're, we're not the only ones where these, you know, I hate using the term influencer. But you know what I mean, <laughs> because they're all influences. You know, you can't, you kind of, you kind of do it, mate. Yeah, I know. I want to talk like the kids these days. That's all. Becoming a <laughs> old man, so 
Well, let's let, but, uh, let's. Oh, sorry. There you go. You know, all, all I'm trying to say is that 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 organic grassroots thing is is cropping up everywhere, and um, it's example setting. Um, I think you guys do a really good job of that. Cheers. Um, I think I can do a lot more than I do right now. Um, and it's enjoyable to do it whilst we do it at the same time. I mean, we, we, we've kind of got the cushy job, um, because it involves actually out there doing it. Mm. Um, and if it's as an incentive to do it more often, then it's like, well, that's kind of pretty close to living the dream, you know, um, knowing there's people out there who might be able to afford one weekend a year, if that to nurture their passions because of just the pressures of jobs, families, whatever it is. Um, so yeah doing more of it and it's funny because when it leads from from that forward it's like well cool let's let's get to the creamy stuff and like i've never hunted chill deer bloody hell i want to i really mm. want to but i know my obsessive mm-hmm. personality would just be like where can i find that patch of ground and then just moves to queensland yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, but like, a working holiday why not yeah why not uh, why not indeed well let's flick I've to that we've, we've, we've I've had seen a... them, i've seen them on the new south wales border oh. yeah so have i Texas, seen them in Texas. Not far from. I'll here. put it this way: with the exception of hog deer, within an hour's drive of me, there's confirmed sightings of all of them. Mm. I mean, mm. all of them. And mm. when I started hunting, that was not the case. It wasn't the case. And you just think, mm. well, are we getting to this point where there's just this homogenizing and there's just deer everywhere? It's like, well, no. At the end of the day, they still start to conform to habitat, and. That's what I'm trying to work out with Chittle is just trying to really understand their habitat better because I've seen different areas that they kind of live in. And it's like, well, are they just an ultra adaptable species or are they just this mystery? Like their behavior seems like different. erratic. It's different. Are you going to tell me that you've got snowy yeah, mountains? I don't know. Tell me what. You guys have got then. <laughs> what happened? The mystery, the, the mystery of the snowy mountain elk. I don't know. I think Frofty shot that one last year, didn't he? I dropped the snowy mountain. Oh, you're talking about Wapiti jeans down like in the Kosciuszko Monaro area. That's right. There's there's, the the snowy mountain elk. Well, but uh, there's, I mean. There was an emphasis on all of them, Frofty. (laughs) Most of the red herds close to Sydney um, originated from farm releases back in the 70s. That's just how it was. And most of those, like the most successful um, red farming. Um, starting point is to have red hinds crossed with a purebred whoppity bull on top of that. Um, and so the genes are just in there. I think that's a, in part a large contributor to the good genes in New South Wales because we've got some of the best wild red deer in the world. Um, mm. I don't know the Snowy Mountains that well. I just know that the few patches where there are established reds, yes, they have the reputation for being very large and occasionally on a set of antlers you can see the influences, but the idea of purebred elk is, um, yeah, I don't think it exists at all. Um, and they're just, just like Fiordland, you know, they're just waiting for that watering down. Um, the Fiordland Wobbity Foundation just aggressively just culls out as many reds as they can each year to hold yeah. back the tide. It's like mm-hmm. a genetic tide. Um, but like, I mean, it's almost like um, thylacine questions. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like there's, there's just an inkling of hope. You think, well, there's enough hope, but um. You'd have to be hiding and and really not care about sex, um, be on a good feed and a good wicket. I don't know. Like I think you know, in, in captivity, I know there's a samba deer down in Victoria that's 28 years old behind the wire. It's like it's it's amazing when they're on a good patch. How 
I'm just trying to nurture the dream, but um, <laughs> I just probably. Sorry, mate. It's a conversation that I've, I've, I've unfortunately been involved with a number of times about the mysterious elk herd on, on the snowy mountains. So. Well, but it's funny though, because in some of the areas which you say one. this is only because a fallow area. Or... You haven't ever um, put in for uh, the ballots in the field in Crofty? Most of your stuff's <laughs> local to home? Climbing. I was just talking to a bloke from South uh, North Dakota last night um, seeing if he wants to put in for the Wapiti ballot. Mm. Um, but I, I know that you know, the chances are the same as everyone. I know people who've gotten you know, three out of four years of putting in. I know some people are on their 10th year and haven't got it. A bit like the hog deer ballot. It's a ballot. It's all that. You mm. need to win it. Mm. But um, there's some really good second B options in NZ. I've got a bit of an urgency with the NZ thing because, you know, that they're kind of going one way. I mean, they finally kind of tightened up on some of the gun law stuff, which to be perfectly honest, was pretty loose in some respects. And I exploited that looseness for many years going over there. But the tide that then comes from that is New Zealanders really realizing what they have and maybe just getting a little bit fed up with Aussies shooting better heads than them or just <laughs> sharing a different etiquette or, you know, going against local understandings, all that kind of stuff. So I've got a fair few New Zealand dreams, which I've put on the back burner for a while, but I want to kind of attack but yeah. you know what the be the best thing with NZ is, and like the, and the smartest way to really hunt NZ is to is to actually talk to locals, but not just like, "Hey, mate, can you help me get onto this stuff?" It's like, "Nice to meet you. I'm an Australian hunter, just doing my thing. What are you into? Oh, you're into hunting too. Offering reciprocal kind of opportunities like that. Um, I know many people who've done that. The New Zealand, you know, rural community is one of the most hospitable I've ever come across in the world. Um, they're just absolutely lovely. If you're just going to go over there and screw them over, well, then you won't last with them very much. But if you're going to be a friend and say, look, this is what we're up to. I was shocked by, I remember being at the side of the road near Hokitika, um, and just poor, I was just by myself in the middle of winter, just trying to work out some stuff on, on a paper doc map. And I got this guy knocks on the window. I'm like, and he was a bit, he was a bit scary, you know, like <laughs> a lot of, a lot of like, specs of something which were more than just food in the beard he's just like hey go on i'm like hey man he's like what you like what does that mean and he's like what are you doing i'm like and i just come with a, a bit of an ad it's like knowing your business what i'm doing but literally through the, the crazy eyes and all that he just wanted to talk and when he finally got to talking he's like there's all these chamois that come down into the beach from up there they don't always hang up in the mountains sometimes they just they hang around down there and one of the biggest chamois on the West Coast was shot over there and it just pours it all out. It's like, oh, don't go to the where the guidebook says to fish for trout. Go down that little creek that comes at the back of town there. There's monsters up there. But you know what I mean? Like that that just came pouring forth. Um, and that kind the, of stuff um, only happens. I took uh, and, a, a mate of mine uh, over to the bottom of the South Island and I've got an uncle that lives over there that came with us, but he, he was only new into hunting, but and he was from the North Island. We went down to the South Island and we were um, having our last supper, so to speak, at the, the Hard Antler at Haast. Oh, yeah. uh, now, if you've yep. been there, you'll know it. Uh, won't be too dissimilar to what the rafters of your home look like, um, but it's covered covered in antlers. And um, when they heard an accent and they noticed that we were off hunting, now we had a table of people around us offering all sorts of advice, where to go, how to go about it, you know, what time of day they're coming down, whether they eat seaweed, whether they don't. And if you're not very lucky, when you come back, 
come and shout me a beer and I'll take you down to the dump and you can shoot that double six that's been living down there for 12 months <laughs> sort of thing. Right? Forget the helicopter, man. It's just around there at the tip. But you're right. Like if you if you put yourself out there, especially over there, um, you know, they're not so precious about spots because they've got so much access and so much uh, opportunity. To, they're more, more than willing to brag, um, to be mm. honest. Yeah. Yeah. And the opportunities that don't necessarily form like the, you know, this idea of a top five, like we know where there's high quality tar hunting to be had, you know, because they ballot those areas. We know that there's the Wapiti thing and we know that Glazenock or you know, Dark River and all that, like they've got their reputation, um, all that kind of thing, Otago Reds and all that. But in between all that are just incredibly unique opportunities, which are just unique to that area. Um I mean, That's it's funny, right. like my, my, my biggest New Zealand goal, which beats Wapiti out of the park, is a, a good whitetail from over there. And I know Stuart that's Island. not easy. Stuart Island. Uh, yeah. Mainland. But oh, Stuart Island has its attraction for its own things. Yes, I want to shoot whitetail on Stuart Island, but that's there's a very holistic thing about, you know, being able to take – it feels like that Desert Island experience, like the whole idea that you could probably live on a place and survive the traditional way because of the abundance there, because of the sense of it's just enough, it's got just enough of what it needs. It's like some kind of fairy tale, tale idyllic thing. So I buy into that for different reasons. And that's a yeah. hunt that I'd want to share with other people and do socially. Um, mm. Hunting whitetail, um, yeah, on the mainland is something I would do as a personal pursuit because I've thought about it for too many years. Um, mm. I just, uh, yeah, Murray Horsefield, that's where he, he passed away in, in, in their pursuit um may he rest in peace but um yeah that kind of hard interesting country with a really elusive animal that's under pressure it's like yeah no i'll um and then go and hunt them selectively then like that's that's my trophy hunt for whatever reason whitetail got under my skin and i i want them amazing let's flip this conversation quickly mindful of time um speaking of Fine, that thing. You know, go, introduction ghost yeah i know we haven't even cracked into it um <laughs> Sorry about that. Hope you don't have to work tomorrow. Um, you've had a really good rut raw, right? You, you've you've put some stuff out there. You've well, shown us on socials. Let's talk about that because you, you've put a lot of hard work into that and um, not by yourself for some of it. You've taken a good friend with you and you've, you've helped him out. Going to talk us through some of that. Yeah, so you, your microphone is just breaking up a little bit there. I was only hearing every second word, but I, you want me to talk about the rut? Your rut, your raw, your experience with your friend, your it was down. great to watch. Yeah. Oh, cheers. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but it's funny, but, but but light on, like it's light on. I think the big X factor with the success, this rut, is just the experience thing, having seen multiple ruts flow over like that and how they can change and then accommodating for that change. When I say accommodating, I just mean sticking it out and mm-hmm. not shifting and the the red hunt that was nine days involved a forest rebooking, and saw the first deers on day eight, and like that's 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 tough. Um, but when that's your expectation, and to know that that time of year does bring in autumn rains, to know that things can be later, that um, sometimes you just have years that are light on, and you still get. I was anchoring myself. On two things, because a lot of this was about Dave, who I was with, who's who's a new mate, but one of the, you know, you just click with someone and you knew you were after the same thing. And, um, well, he was literally after the same thing. We were, we were hunting the same area and then friendship built from that, which was great. Um, 
But I was able, but the difference there was, I could, we're talking about a guy who's extremely determined, extremely methodical, extremely persistent, but like you're really using his head and his legs a lot to suss all this kind of stuff out. And there was a determination that wouldn't stop him. On my side of things, I have well, probably seven, seven red ruts to look at and a lot of conversation with a lot of people who are really into that and seeing the rhythms flow over year after year. And it's a bit of an inescapable thing that that perspective only does come with time. But when you start getting it, oh, it's a beautiful thing. You can't look at the, the landscape any other way. And you'll just come on rock up to new areas and I'll just look up on a hillside and just see a little kind of patch and a rut. I'm like, there's going to be rubs up there. There will be. And then, you know, sometimes, you know, whether it be public or private, you ask permission or you just book it in like, no, I never thought of it, but I'm going to go there. And then, because all I need to see is the rub. That's all I need to see. And it's just satisfied that it's, 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 it's just constantly testing the method. It's, mm. it's, it's just the proof. That's all you need. I don't need to see them all the time. And, um, and that helps, that helps kind of with sticking it out a little bit, but you know, not seeing any rubs leading up into this roar at all in some areas. You're thinking, oh, that's, that hurts. Yeah. Very different to the previous year where there was literally hundreds. You think, all right, well, all you can do in those situations is like ask, it's not like, mm, what's happened to all the deers? It's like, no, why has there been, been a change? Like you just take advantage of that lack. You just take advantage of that lack and you just have to go back to the square one and deconstruct topography and work out what offers them advantages there. It's like, well, what other areas, like this is the thing, there'll be a lot of um, hunting areas which also have a national park area near it too. And you think, all right, well, yes, you're not going to go into the national park, obviously. But from a topographic map, you can say, well, that's probably got the same environmental factors that offer them something. Could they be there? Why would they be there? What reasons would they shift from there to somewhere else? And that's the only thing that kind of keeps you rebooking after day seven. Um, a lot of wet weather in amongst it all. I mean, that's a really good way to, you know, get to know people when you're just stuck in the same <laughs> tent and cracking a few more and, and, and yarning more. That's, you know, that's a great advantage. If you're there by yourself, that'll probably send you insane. But knowing that weather systems like that initiate these big resets um, where everything, no matter what stage they are in a running cycle, or like it's just agitated and cold and just needs to let themselves go. And, and, and we feel the same way. And there's one thing that I anchor myself to in these situations a lot is just like, how am I feeling? I mm. am a mammal too. There's that many times where I've had like a, a midday nap and thought, oh, I just wanted to stick it out on this hillside, just glass all day. And you're like, I'm agitated. I've got the shits, I want to stand up. And there's been more than a couple of instances in my life where that moment where I'm just like, I want to get up. And then you just see that the hair on the top of a, of a back line just riffle and shuffle. And they're thinking the same thing too. They're, they're getting agitated. They're a bit annoyed. Um, and then you can just, you can extrapolate that out to like, all right, cool. Winter or windy. How do I feel? How do they feel? It's hot and you, you're thirsty. That's how they feel because that's how I feel. You can start to add those kind of factors in. It's just about being very much in touch with very basic need and yourself and in kind of sharing that with them. Um, all these different layers of it. And just, you know, so you're not seeing animals, but you're just working with the bush that way. You've got, you know, them all stacking on top of each other and you're just, you're just indulging it all. It's just a big, beautiful wank and I love it. It's like, oh, get into it all. And then all of a sudden you get to the synthesis point where you're like, oh, I can anchor myself to two factors really strongly right there. You have faith in that. You've got to. 
And sometimes those situations where like the only logical thing is you might be a kilometer away from something, but you've got to go three kilometers around and come from the other side because that's the only smart thing to do. And that's what's going to happen and work out. The moment you put in those those hard yards at those points with an intelligent backing, oh, hmm. it's sacred. It's just beautiful. And you and you get your animals. You get your animals. It's um. So this time, long yarn. I was lucky no. to get up because I broke my red rut up into into chunks to you know hunt with different people, do different things. Um, yeah, it was day five that I finally got a hind, and I was glad to get the hind down because at the end of the day, irrespective of all the extras, the meat delivery was so essential. And as far as I'm concerned, they're on pine on on par with young samba, like adolescent samba. Red hinds are just the best. If they've had a whole summer of feed behind them, that is the most glorious flesh you can have in your freezer. And it just takes one bullet to offer a really big delivery all at once. Mm. Um, so that was good. So it just allowed that whole, like, it allowed the whole stag hunt to happen a lot easier like that. Um, yeah, come to day nine, it's funny because I we just I just discussed with Dave before, we because we decided after that, like, it's day eight, what are we going to do? We're going to do a backpack hunt. We were in deep enough as it was. We're like, no, nope, we're going to get the packs on and and do that. For, for him to do that, he actually had to drive all the way back to Sydney and back again to to do some resupply to make that happen. That's how determined oh, this guy was. I was going to say how far is backpack. that, but that might give you away a little bit. Um, it was a few hours, I imagine. It's a big job back to Sydney. Are you, are you going to get the tractor out and start taking Sydney? And just yeah, I was like, nah, there it is. <laughs> Um, I don't, no, I think, know it's got to be to the that, west. That's a big deal, right? Big deal. Back to Sydney. It was a big deal, but um, it was committed. But the point is, but the, but going that further in, it wasn't just like, oh, the further in you go, the more animals there are. I was like, no, bullshit. That's not that's not the case. I find at all. It was just like mm. going to a point that happened to be remote from where we were that offered key habitat offerings, a very mixed environment with different shapes, different kinds of bush, all offering offering a magnet point for a lot of them. Even then, we only saw one rub tree getting there. One. But that was enough. And mm. I went out and I I put a camera out there just to like, for my own sake, just like, well, at least this will tell me what what might have happened afterwards, if anything. It might just fill in that uh, knowledge anxiety that you might have. And, um, and, and, and essentially for myself, just like let it go. Like I've, I've got my deer. I've got this experience. There's just like thumbs up everywhere. There's thumbs up everywhere. I will go for this one last afternoon walk with just a, a sense of letting go. And the last thing we said today was like, well, we are pretty damn remote. Let's just think about this because no phone service at all. Um, just, you know, we, we can both handle ourselves in the bush, but if it's one of those minor problems, we want to know how to get in touch. He says, look, at the end of the day, universal hunter safety signal is just three um, rifle shots in rapid succession. And so an hour before dark, I'm like, oh, it's time to time to walk back to camp and we're going to have a good yarn. It's going to be great. And there was three shots in rapid succession. Oh, and, I was like, and I was like, I'm getting excited. I'm like, oh, maybe he shot something. Because I put up some pigs about half an hour beforehand. They would have headed in his general direction. I thought maybe he's tailed up some pigs. That's a good thing. Um, but I was only half up the hill. I'm like, oh, oh, three shots in rapid succession. And I don't know. I've been in a few first aid situations in my my time, but that first hot flush of like, oh, it's real, it doesn't let you set your um your order of priorities up very well. It can just you know a lot of things go out the door, and you've got to start from the one, two, three again. So I'm running back to camp, and I'm just like 
tying multiple rain jackets around my waist and getting multiple water bottles and things like that and it just just making sure the EPIRB's good and all sort of just like, oh, and walk down on him. And there is just like, you know, arms red up to the, up to the sleeves. And he's like, oh, they're a lot bigger than fallow, mate. And just <laughs> shows the shape. And it was just, it was just too good. It was too perfect. It's like, there's those times in life where like, it's like, this is too, too good to be true. And I've, I've had more than a couple of those that I've seen in myself or others in my life, but it does come on the back of, intelligent mindful directed hard work and geez that's just the best feeling it's just the best feeling there's nothing like it it's just electrifying and that carry out was horrendous <laughs> it was horrendous fueled with those good feelings you know what i mean yeah. um yeah i mean that was the red side of things and I, it was this but it got to this point where i'm like look i because i'd arranged for some some fallow deer hunting to happen on, on private property and it's like, well, cool. If you arrange that, that's that's a date thing. You can't be flexible like you would be the forest. Like I've got to go and do that. And this is already a week into April, and there'd been a I'd heard of a burst of fallow running that had happened around March to April. Um, I'm, I'd love to hear if you had any perspectives on on ruts that were further north, um, just to just to compare them all. But there'd been a bit of a burst, and then nothing, and then you might be on a Facebook group or on the phone to people, and they're like, oh, has it already happened, or is it all already over? It's like. I don't know. It's just um, that that kind of that idea that it could have been this dissipated rut that kind of happened early and then just fizzled. It's happened before, and so there's that nerve thinking, oh, maybe I've missed the the classic experience and all that kind of thing. When I got out to the patch, I lost access to one of the blocks that I had through oh. unexpected circumstances. But the, the owner was like, "Look, mate, I I prefer it if you didn't hunt here. Please stay the night and all that." But um, yeah, and. That's another thing. Don't worry about that. But it was disheartening. It's like, oh, fuck. A few punches in a row. Don't like it. Um, but spoke to the owners next door who I'd already arranged to hunt with, you know, hunt in their place. And, and it was a beautiful welcome from them. Like they had family staying up there. It was, I think it was, it was, it was, it was like a long weekend for them. They had caravans and a lot of people up there. I thought normally I wouldn't want to kind of crash their vibe, but it was wonderful to be received that way and all that kind of thing. But the one key thing to all of this is no croaking being mm. deer yet. And it's like, all right, cool. Well, another beautiful, you know, people situation that I like to settle back. And I'm like, well, at least I've got great friends here and this has been a wonderful time, you know, all that kind of stuff. But all that kind of thinking is just like this residual, you know, letting yourself off the hook kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I still pushed through and did a big backpack hunt into like far remote country. We're talking about some rough ass hills, and it's just it it shocks me how far fallow are willing to go away from pasture, even though they're very much like a a farm fringe woodland kind of animal. It's a very good... go some crazy. Yeah, but I've also found uh, this year and last year. Last year I started to get an inkling of this, and then this year I really um, solidified my thinking on it. Um, I went quite a way off the fringe farmland this year. Uh, looking for different habitat. Uh, so I've always hunted, you know, like all of us, you look at the maps, there's farmland, you know, it's a honey pot. Animals are going to and from it, you know, under the cover of darkness. And, you know, a lot of people are trying to intercept them. But when I found these these herds of fellow three, four, five kilometres away from that farmland, I, mm. I, I probably hadn't experienced um, a lot of time with them before. And I, I realized that they they weren't traveling. This was their home. Mm. This was their habitat. They ate there. 
they weren't part of this group that went forwards and backwards every day. So, 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 so that's opened up a whole new world of fellow hunting for me that I not really considered. I'd, I started hunting fellow on farmland, you know, on private land, and then went into state forest, but still used the farmland as the, as the honeypot. Um, there's some very good stuff deeper in that I hadn't really considered much. Part of that, I guess, does feed into the fact that it's been some wet years and there's mm. just good feed in the woods. Mm. Yeah. That pasture will often dry sure up. how far they change their habitat, though. Like, they're quite yes. habitual in, in their home range. I don't yes. think – I think they would persevere. And don't forget, like – well, don't forget, you yeah, probably haven't been to these locations, but, um, you know, there's, there's creek systems that run through that I've never seen them dried up. So it's, it's naturally pretty wet up there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. It does have its dry time and does have its fires and things push things around. But um, it was just interesting. You could you could see these animals morning and night, day after day, in the same location. They weren't going back and forth, and that was cool. Very cool. It's, it's funny, but if their needs are met, they'll get real lazy. It's well, like that's the- it. Animals are animals are wired to be well, not lazy, but they're wired to do a return on investment on food. Mm, yes. So they're not going to walk 5K through food to get to food. They're going to eat at the food that's at their feet. Yeah. Mm. So if everything's, if all those needs are met within a location, they're not going to leave that location until, it. unless they're pushed off that location. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it, for them, it's, 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 it's a constant equation of how much energy do I need to expend to get energy in? Yeah. You know, so that's, yeah, that's, so that's what it always is. And 100%. so, yeah, you know, um, um, I mean, it's like when there. you notice, like when, if you've been traveling over the last few years, there's not so many, I've noticed there's not so many roos on the side of the road now because, you know, there's pick for kilometers that way. Whereas generally when it dries up, you know, that you get the, there's a, a natural pick mm. that comes along the side of the road. So the roos come, they mm. come with that pick, but when it's, when, it, when it's, you know, when we're in, while we, we're, we're, the good seasons are ending, but I think, but you know, we've had such a three to four years of such good seasons. They just don't need to move. They don't need to to pursue. I mean, that's why people say, like, you know, when you hunt somewhere like the Pillog, and people say, you know, I saw goats at one end and they saw goats at the other end. And they say, do you think they're moving? And I said, oh, I don't know if a gator work thirty five kilometres just to stand with other goats. You know, if they're pretty happy there, they're going to stay there. If they're ever, unless ever, unless there's a need for them to move. Yeah, but my thought, my thought pattern still went to how did this group of deer end up this far in? Like, why did they move from the farm fringe land to start with? You know, if if we take that, and it's probably a bushfire that's run them there or something like that. But it, like, you know, you can think about it theoretically, like you're like you're putting it. You know that. There's no need to move if they've got everything that they need. Mm. I'd still, right. not, I mean, I'd still uh, not witnessed it before. Like, uh, just hadn't seen it before, which which I thought was great. See, I had a I had a r- ridiculously bad rut up here in Queensland. Raw um, in January and February and March, there was deer everywhere. Uh, literally, there's one bit of video I've got. One, I think there's like ten spikers on a dam, and I'm just going, well, it's going to be a great raw and it just the whole property denuded of deer. Yeah, <laughs> they just went. I don't know. You had a lot of 
You had a lot of people pressure though. Yeah, but even even you know even that did you know that that the the roaring that happened for two days were, was just up in the hills. They were up, they did, they didn't come down. They were up in the hills, and even on in in May when I finally you know when I finally saw a stat in May after you know I've lost count of how many visits. They were, I, I saw them, but out a kilometre away, you know, mm-hmm. when they they were like two properties over, and I said, "Oh, there's stags there," and that was the first stags I saw. But if you um, didn't, if you didn't see any deer on that block, that means there were no hinds to bring the stags down. But the thing was, there was before the rut, there was hinds everywhere. Mm. They moved That's on. That's it. I mean, I, yeah. I've got video. Yeah. I, did, I just I got video of hinds everywhere, and then mm. they're just gone. So, property, um, this this yeah. um. the why is a huge one I, so again, that, but, but asking the whys about those sudden mm, yeah changes. that's it that I, I i have i have thought you know i've spent many hours thinking mm. what happened you know and there's rubs on that block there's and there's fresh rubs on that block and you know and there was a couple of incidences that you know were obvious influences but that doesn't in, that doesn't kind of influence the whole the whole the whole what what happened in that ecosystem and I'm, I'm yet to i'm yet to figure it out and i don't know if it's because there's more cattle movement whatever it was but you know january february march deer 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 roaring deer get a cutoff point no, because mm-hmm. i was finding that where there was a uniform cutoff point across almost all my cameras mm-hmm. hearing the same thing from other hunters across the board like really and what we had down this way was about a two months dry um quite unexpected because we've had our wet years and it was just like a like it was the first time I'd seen some paddocks even didn't devoid of grass, not just brown, like devoid of grass. I hadn't seen that in years. We had a big flush come through and it, it rectified itself. It that that had a very sudden effect on a lot of animals, like completely clearing out of whole regions within hmm. like a week um, across the board. I thought it was just really interesting how quickly they all uniformly reacted to that. But then it was coinciding like that, that my, migration based on climate was happening exactly as the rut should have been heating up so you've got a lot of confused bucks and stags <laughs> everywhere just trying to suss it out and the funny the thing is there was still plenty of stags shot down this way uh, reds i mean um plenty of excellent fallow but for me i saw more bucks this year than than fallow does i didn't hear a single red roar at all this year full stop but got a heap of reports that there was roaring happening like in later April, which seems like well, that's quite late. But then I was having people from the Hunter Valley hassling me that around my birthday, which is 14th of March, or mid-March, that there was like flat out roaring, like, like a complete red rut that brewed up in some areas with them all like fighting, going at it, making a display of themselves. And so it's like these little seasonal glitches, mm. changes happen that – it's, it's, it's biology and hormones that are driving them towards these things. And then something happens that's a bit out of the ordinary. And it's like only half of them kind of react to it. But because the other half aren't reacting to it, they're like, so is it on or not? Like, are we fighting or are we, what, what are we doing? Like, you know, and it just, and that distribution just throws it all out of whack. But for me, to be honest, at the end of the day, it's like, I'm like, oh, the whole thing's changed. Like, no, I want it to change. It's amazing where animals start to turn up where they've never been before when this kind of things happens and where they've never been before and they turn up, they're like, Oh, we like this. It's meeting all our basic needs. Maybe we'll just start to zero in on a pattern here, that kind of thing. Um, 
I, I, I've been shocked by the quality of trail camera picks that have turned up post rut. Yeah. And it is, but it's nice because it just, in the back of your head, you think, oh, has everything changed? Is everything redistributed? It's like, well, things did change, but they're there. And I mean, like. Well, I heard, I heard Rory on the 6th of May. Bullshit. Really? So I was, I was literally going, that one on the hill still up there. And I could hear him. And it was just, I was stunned by it, you know, because the year before, the the 30th of March or the, the the last two days of March into the first weekend of April were the property I was hunting on. I literally, on the first day up there, I said, I'm not going to shoot anything today because there is so many deer up here roaring. I'm just going to look at them. Yeah. And I spent a whole day just walking around looking at different deer roaring and had this stupid stag basically almost step on me. They were so close. Yeah. And then at the same time the next year, Dunedin, and and it, and and they didn't come in. They just seemed to stay up high, and uh, you know that's it. So, mm. you know that that's. I mean, it's both frustrating, but it's frustratingly interesting to try mm. and figure yeah. out why why that yeah. happened. And, as and, and I'm I'm hoping what will happen is they'll come off the hills now into the flats to feed up over now that the rut. Is, is well, I saw on so on the sixth, I heard a roar, and then on the following Friday, which was the, the 13th, I saw the two stags together. Mm. Uh, oh, well, that's they're it, they're, they're, they're yeah. finished up. Mm. So, and they were feeding out in the open, they were walking along a, on a high ridge on a property, two actually two properties over on a high ridge, just feeding. And as luck would have it, as I was leaving, I was actually talking to Ian. I said, I've got to get off the phone. I said, one of the property owners is on the street. So I pulled over and said, introduced myself to this guy. And he said, no, you want to speak to the property owner next door and gave me her name. So I'm going to go see her next time I'm up to see if I can get access. Because they were on her ridge. Take chocolate. Uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Whereas I found mm -hmm. in the, the fellow rut, public land, uh, Hanging Rock Nundle, it was a textbook, a textbook rut. For the for the fellow, um, mm. we were there. We were there. We had to be there pre-rut because yeah. that was the timing that worked for us. So we're there. We were there uh, second to the tenth, um, and the the fellow bucks that I had interacted with over the last four or five years in the same place. All my photos, all the animals I've taken, all somewhere around the fourteenth to the sixteenth, and we started to see. So when we when we arrived on the second. We were bumping into stupid young bucks all over the place. Uh, everything that was shot was a buck. Um, you know, they were, that's, that's mm -hmm. basically what was out there being dumb. And um, the last two days of being there, the big fellas showed up. The, the, the croaking started, the big guys arrived, and we left because uh, that was the end of our booking. And um, watching the, the social channels of what was going on in there, the rut picked up that week on cue as it has done perfectly every year. So, um, yeah, interesting. Just a weather pattern obviously is throwing a whole bunch of stuff off for you, but yeah, certain, certainly there it's, it was identical to other years, which was, yeah. which was good. Yeah. I mean, and of course, then there's, you know, there's always the, 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 I know, I think one of the, the joys of it is that we try to kind of project some kind of logic onto something that, you know, it's illogical. That, has no interest. Has no interest in our in our, in our considerations of it, other than its predation. You know, yeah. the only thing it worries about is if we're going to eat it. So you yeah. know, and we try to project. Oh, why did this happen? Why was that deer doing? 
Like um, I was, say, hunting Nunda last year in winter because I go down in winter with my son. And the, the, the first day we shot a deer and the second day we went out and I just took my boy with me. And, you know, I shot a basically a little a little fellow at the carp. We'd gone for a walk for a couple of hours and he was starting to tire out. And how I know he's starting to tire out is his concentration's going. So he's in the track in front of me dancing. Yeah. You know, and he's got, because I insist that he wears earmuffs because I don't want him to be deaf like his old man. He's got earmuffs on and he's dancing in the track. And I look past him and I can see our car and then I can see the deer standing at our car. So I kind of start trying to call his name. But of course he can't hear me because he got earmuffs on. So I slowly will grab him and stop him, and he kind of steer up there. And I had to wait for it to actually move away from the car, but I can shoot it. So at one stage I could look through the driver's side window and the passenger side window and see it standing at the passenger side door. I was just <laughs> bloody there, and I had to come. So I went, "No, I'm not going to take his shot and go." Put a, put a three hour wait through the truck. So I had to go wide. And so it was on one side of the car. And I was like, you know, like when you're hiding for something behind it. And I had to go wide. And it must have picked up my movement. And it finally moved away from the car. And then it, it did the, you know, it moved 30 meters. And it then went doink, doink, doink. And did that, you know, that bounce they do. And it stopped. I went, got it. So we literally went yeah, so back the truck through the scrub. <laughs> Dropped the tailgate. I picked. I grabbed him. Stood him on the tailgate. You, we put it in the day, and we we drove back to camp. You know, so. Mm. And I've been. A, there was a guy we hunted with once at Nundle years ago, and he shot two fellow at his car. He literally walked back and they're standing in his car and he shot both of them. Yeah, I've I've come back more than so once, my, um, and they've thrashed my... the blue gums all around where I've parked, as I've been hunting elsewhere. It's just the way they work up there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my um my raw red chasing reds was actually influenced by human humans. Whereas the property next door to where I was hunting my block actually put up a two meter deer fence, and they fenced in three thousand acres of their property, and whatever deer was inside there is inside there, and actually blocked the natural migration of those red deer. Because I was sitting next to that fence, I could hear them roaring. And down comes the fence of these big double sixes coming, trying to get through onto the block that I'm on, and they couldn't get through. Their natural migration path was actually blocked. So it was actually interesting to watch that, you know, a human-introduced object can actually influence the deer mm. because the only deer that I saw on my block, bar two, one of which I shot, were actually very, very young. All the big deer were on the other side of the fence. He, he got, he, he was quite lucky. You must but have put a lot of apples out on. before that fence went um, up. So it shows you that humans can have a big influence on the, the, the deer migration paths. Mm. Oh, Absolutely. yeah. I mean, we were once at Pilliga and we were driving back from Pilliga West to Pilliga East. So we were camping in Pilliga East and we had the for both the permit for both east and west and we'd gone to west and it's an hour drive from camp so we're coming back in the evening and as you come back through the west you go through very very good cropping country and then you get into that marginal country and then you hit the state forest and just on that marginal so just before the so butting up against the state forest line it's on it's dusk it's not dark but it's you know the light's fading we've been out for a whole day chasing goats we've got a couple and you look into this paddock and there's like a, there is 
I mean, there is a thousand goats in this paddock. Mm. And we're just going, and we pull over and we're looking, you know, and you can just see it's not, it's a salt lick or something. I can't tell exactly what it is, but there's this big shape and they're just all nose into this big shape in the middle of this otherwise scrubby paddock. And this guy turned, pull this car goes past and stops and he goes, what are you doing? And we're looking at these goats. He goes, well, they're my goats. And I go, yeah, okay, buddy. We're still looking at them. And he goes, <laughs> and, like, and he goes, that's right. We said, he says, yeah, you know, he was kind of not happy that we were looking at him. He said, oh, they're my goats. And I, I can't remember who it was, but someone said, mate, I can't see an ear tag amongst them, you know. <laughs> and you know what happened was he just whacked that thing there in that paddock and they just came from everywhere to that, that source. And then he closed the wire behind him and all of a sudden he's got a thousand goats. Hmm. Hey, before we wrap, um, I'd love to hear the end of your fellow story, Profty. You, you've you've dived into the middle of this big block, but then I interrupted you. So, um, how 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 did that I'll, shape I'll up for you? Oh well, all of a sudden there was a lot of nighttime croaking, but not anywhere close to where I was. That imagine what big mountainous country looks like, and it's only at the very bottom where there's pasture and things like that. Um, not on the property that I had access to, but there was rubs all through. Where I was at, so that obviously you're spending a lot of late summer, the early transition from velvet into hard antler up in these hills and had shifted down. Um, just like Mark was saying before about oh, like, um, hinds disappearing, well, this was one of these areas which normally holds like there's always going to be pockets of does everywhere. Not the case. They'd buggered off and probably gone down to this lower country for whatever reason. Um, so there was like three and a half days of that. And um, it got to this pinch point where. Um, because I'd seen a few animals right down on, on, on property I didn't have access to, just, you know, glassing, browsing the menu kind of thing. And um, was getting really exhausted because these hills, it's, it was rough country, just as rough as some of the red country that I was hunting. And I took a phone call when I got to the, the reception point of altitude and spoke to someone, yarned to them about it, whatever, it just kept going. And then I realized I left my camera somewhere in the dark on the hillside. It's like, mm. right, I'm really starting to drop the ball a bit. And the next day I did a two kilometer run from, but I didn't realize I dropped it there. I wasn't sure about that. So that was the thing. So I did this two kilometer run from where I uh, camped on the very top of the hill um, to where I'd done some glassing, did that four times. I guess that was a lot. I was exhausted. I was I, like, just got to the point where I'm like, just accept that you've lost your camera. You're stuffed up. Thankfully you got a backup. Don't do it again, donkey. And, um, and on the last walk up, I mean a monster fallow buck in the thickest waddle in the most random spot. I was like, right, am I supposed to get enthusiastic again? Yeah, well, sure, of course I am. Um, it was just like, it was like, whoa, he was big. I mean, like this, this area can breed quality like that. And it's just not every day you see that. It's like, oh, that fires you up. It just drags you back in again. I had no chance of shooting him. It was just one of those taken by surprise moments. Ten minutes later, I find my camera and it just fallen into the spit of like a hollowed out um, burnt log so it was black inside camera in the tripod's black so i just didn't see it whatever but if i hadn't lost that camera i wouldn't have had that moment anyway mm. i went to where i'd seen the buck and just traced it back and there was this line of very subtle but noticeable green rubs on just little shrubs where he'd he'd shifted in and for whatever reason I just decided no, time to go back up into the hills and there's this one basin where it forms itself as a bit of a feature of this area because the, it will eventually hit that kind of pasture country and on the other side there's a bit of a saddle so it's enough for that to be a transition zone into like the whole other side of the range, farms well on the other side of the area, a whole new district kind of thing. So there's a travel zone there. It's like, all right, enough to be encouraged. Went back, 
saw the owners, caught up, have a beer. It was nice and all that. Um, so random, just middle of the afternoon, all of a sudden, brr, brr, croaks opening up. But not like constant croaking, just like this welcome to area kind of croak. It's like, mm-hmm. and here I am. Who else is here? And and they anyway, they'd all seen him that afternoon. They'd gone and rattled him up. Um, yeah, Blake had taken his young fella Heath up there. They were just going for a father-son wander up the hills. Um, the granddad was with them too, I think. And then, you know, do a bit of a, a rattle. And there's like a, a monster moose-wide paddly bugger that's just rocked up into the area, probably the one that was croaking, different to the one that I'd seen. All of a sudden, within a short space of time, there's multiple good, big, mature bucks in the area. I think, holy shit, this is on this just that 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 surge just renews itself it's like you know i'm gonna do this and um and yeah and i I had a so i thought i'd just go up for the afternoon right until dark when when, you know when you're zoned in and you really want it again you stop making the silly mistakes and you're just being ultra careful every footstep you go into that zone again and um and finally right on dark i just finally started to see deer for the first time like in the area where i'm in control i've got the rifle i've got the binos i'm like yes i've stalked in on you i found you and only half an hour before it got really proper dark, I looked down at my feet and I'm like, I was standing in a scrape and there was little puddles of piss in there. I was like, oh my goodness. I just, yeah. all of a sudden, after all this time, just right on the honey hole, it's like, <laughs> I'll just sit here, I'll just sit here. And then you start to hear a few little rocks, you know, 100 meters up ahead and you think, do you hear? This is going to be good. The film's not really showing itself, doesn't matter. I was just like, enjoy this moment for what it is. And then, and then you just look and see the silhouette. It's a doe head. And then you see, like, oh, but there's more than a doe head. There's a whole line of does just walking straight at me behind it. Not an, not an impressive rack, but rack all the same. Right into five meters. And, you know, it's just moments that like that. I live for them. It's just the best. And when, you know, when you set things up that it was going to happen to, like, they, they had no idea that anything was going on until five meters away. And then she's taken a big jump over one side and another's taken another jump the other side. And they're all just confused and they know it's all up. But it's all around you. And you're saying, like, this is the best. And it's funny those times, like all that buck cared about was putting his nose up their backsides, not a care about me in the world. And mm-hmm. the only reason he buggered off at speed is because they buggered off at speed and he was just making them around. Typical three-year-old buck behavior. Anyway, next morning, just like, <clears throat> into it hard, you know, like when you want it, you want it bad. And you're like, there's no sleeping in on days like that. And then immediately like 4 a.m., like hear a little croak up in the distance. And like, well, that's good. You know, stuff's happening. There's going to be a bit of unison here because it's not one of those croak croaks and leave it. It's like, proper consistent croaking. And then I heard one from right up the, that big basin I described. I'm like, all right, so stuff's happening both sides of me. And then big fella opened up right in the middle of this, basically right in the center of the block, but right in the middle of this basin. And you think I had, that's basically where I'd lost the camera. I had crisscrossed there a million times looking for that camera. And the days prior, just getting up into there, checking out country and all that. I'd been in there and all of a sudden they've just rocked up in there. Oh, it's insane. But when this kind of really rocky country has sound in it, those echoes are, mm. it's worse than we were dealing with before we started the podcast, you know, <laughs> but with great, like you think they're really close and then they sound really far away working all that out. So just methodical kind of shift in, shift in. I'm trying to be really just, cause I had some good new binoculars I was using. I was like, you know, when, you've got a lift in capacity and you, you use them like discipline. They're like, you know, just tearing apart everything and getting thinking, I will see you before you see me. I at least want that advantage. And then hearing the sticks behind you breaking, you're like, and dialing on exactly the same croaks, that big moosey fellow that the, um, 
the property owners had rattled in with their son. You know, it was him 20 meters behind me. And like the shock and it's you know, sometimes you have that, you, you really catch an animal underwear, unawares, but like just the eyes, how like, they're like, mm. just we're both doing it to each other. It's just like, ah, and he's off and I'm off and it's everything's 360. And then there's just croaks building in the whole area. And it's like overnight, the place had just started filling up. And it was one of those times like, well, look, he's found me. I'm in the area. The smell's gone places. Just start beelining it. Just like you can use a bit of like swift aggression, like drop everything you've got, just jog camera in one hand, rifle in the other, like <laughs> get in. And, and then they go quiet for a bit and you think, oh, they've smelt me. But then you get another little small croak and it's on. It's like, it's just so emotional. It's just emotional turmoil. Finally, just kind of stick my head up above this just little ledge. And this doe's just running straight across. And then it, it was him behind him, just like a full pelt, just like not caring about anything else. And she outrun him. And he'd obviously had a scrape in amongst there. So he's tried his run and then he's torn back just to occupy the scrape zone. And anytime he comes back to the scrape, it's just croak, 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 croak. And I found the log and I was going to, the moment he was going to give me any kind of fatal shot, it was just like, it, it had to be it bum facing me a lot and because when he's croaking he's always just doing these circles and circles and then finally he was in this quartering away position where his bum's one way and then he was almost looks like he was looking away at me and then just croaking in multiple directions away from me and then there was just a moment where like i know where his heart is and then just and he just did this seven step sideways tumble fall into a bunch of what was like that oh i was emotional Oh, I was just, it's just, <laughs> you, no, can when you, it. when, when, you can hear it. You can hear it. Out, like, cause there was every chance that wasn't going to happen that morning and you choose, choose to be there anyway. It's like, and he's not a bad buck either. He's not, I'll show you. He's not a bad buck. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, he's not a bad buck. You know? no, he'll do. He's a buck. Bloody he's hell. really not. Yeah. This is the kind of quality that Beauty. lower, highly valued populations can produce when like, you know, the air is not completely thick with deer. These guys can survive, you know, they'll live yeah. up in that rough kind of country. Like you were saying, like if they can hack it up there, they'll stick it out up there yeah. and yeah. then themselves away. Mm. You know, um, I could go on for days guys, you know, that's so all just leave it. <laughs> that's it was beautiful. Great, right? What, what day was that? Stunning look. What day was that? Um, day six. Oh, for that in five and a half, halfway yeah, through just, day six. If you, yeah. if you're listening, if you listen to this, because you're listening to this and you've made it to, you know, uh, two and a half hours through this process, listening to this part of the story, um, most people, I have to say, most people after day two are moving spots. Day three, maybe, not seeing any activity. They're picking and they're moving somewhere else. They're going to go and try and find somewhere else if nothing's going on. You're talking about on your red on your red deer, day eight before you're seeing rubs, and and finding habitat and here you're talking about day five before you're actually getting in on the action man that's there's some stickability there it's easy to look at people that put their stuff out on social media and go that guy's just got all the access like he's got all the luck he's got all the access man are you putting five and six days into tracking down something like that that's that's incredible that's so good the reward's there but one thing i'll only add to all of that is it's aided by the fact that I love the the place. It's the connection mm. with the land itself. Every every moment spent there is healing to me. Um, that, that that is my natural habitat, and so it's not all just an endurance exercise. You know what I mean? Like if once sure. you let go of you know 
the desires are strong. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're all encompassing. But time spent in the Australian bush for any reason by any person is a, a good thing. It's a good thing, that reconnection. And I don't mean just as an observer. I mean participating, being there. And that can be as simple as sitting down and feeling the grass, just off the boardwalk, if you know what I mean, and, and yeah. self-determined. You know, it's, um, yeah, it's what our bush is here for. I, we, we are we are part of our land, whether we like it or not, whether we've moved away from it or not, we are creatures that live on this land. And, um, and we're yeah, very that, privileged to have it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We're unbelievably privileged and lucky to have it. Yeah. I think that's a good note to end this discussion, fellas. Um, any right, final quick things? I'm coming, I'm coming back to you last, sure. Profty. You're, you're more than welcome to hold those two. Mark and Jono, any last quick questions no, I'm, before I'm, we round out? Man's on... got something to say. Let him say it. All right. Yeah, let's listen to what he has to Take say. Take us mate. out, Profty. Thanks, mate. No worries. I just thanks to all three of you. Great to meet you. Um, you haven't lived yet until you've hunted mountain ducks over decoys on oh, big open crop sure. country. It's the most sacred experience. I want everyone to feel it. And the second thing, I just want to say a big shout out to Frank. I know he's a really big supporter of this podcast. He actually <laughs> invited me to come up and join you guys in Nundal. I had other plans. I was hunting some reds and all that. But, you know, when you've got guys like that in our community who are so damn positive, maximum respect <laughs> to you, brother. Keep it natural. I look forward to bumping into you again soon, man. Take it easy. Frank, Frank is a legend. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, absolutely awesome. legend. All right. Well, thanks again, mate. It's been great catching up to you. It's been, uh, it's been a while in the making. We've dodged each other's calendars a fair bit, but we finally made it. So thanks very much for That's joining it. us tonight. It's been amazing. And, yeah, I want to just say thanks, mate. I, I've watched a lot of your videos and your passion for public land hunting, saying that it's available for everyone out there because it is. If you, you know, and if you put in the hard yards, you're going to be successful and, you've, you've, you know, you've, you've reiterated that tonight. So thank you. Keep the content coming. We love it. Will do. Thank you very much for the encouragement. We've been speaking for a long time now, mate. And uh, remember that uh, I think it was through Ned Macon, actually, that we first... Remember when Ned used to be... Oh, um, no. And he did that uh, He did that story. He did that thing like he used to do, you know, uh, public land hunters, and he did one on you, and then he did <laughs> one on me, like a little uh, one-piece really thing. You reminded me of that because I haven't actually met Ned yet, and I think I would... Um, be very fortunate too. He's a yeah, great Yeah, he, he did. He, he when he was, you know, uh, doing the he was working for the well, game council at the time. He he used to do this write up, and I remember you were in one of the write ups, and then he, he he reached out to me, and I I I still got a copy of it. Actually, he did a write up on us, and I thought that's probably the first time we started chatting about things. So it's been a long journey, mate. And I've really, it's been something worthwhile to just watch it all unfold. So just keep going. Big cheers, brother. I'll shake all your hands one day, guys, and hopefully that's soon. Look forward to it. No worries. Thanks, mate. Cool. Thank you very much. That's us. Cool. See you, mate. Catch you. Have a good week.